efforts. Like I see a lot of people online talking about this immigrant issue and they either don't have kids or they don't think it could happen to their kids. Their idea is, hey, shouldn't have fucking come over here. You Broke get those kind law. of people. Broke the law. Shouldn't have fucking come over here if you yeah. kid. You didn't want to get your kids separated. If you were in the presence of of a woman who came over here from Guatemala and she's poor and she's starving and they're taking her baby away and she's wailing and uh. screaming f- from a primal a primal place in her her DNA that the one thing she loves more than anything is being taken away a baby yeah if you if that doesn't freak you the fuck out you're not a part of the team man you're right. missing it. You're missing it. What's What are we here for? We're here for 100 years of whatever. That's what we're here for. If you want to spend 100 years saying, hey, she shouldn't have fucking broke the law, I'm, I don't want you on the team. You're an asshole, right? And I don't give, you, I don't give a fuck if you're right or left. I don't care if you're yeah. religious or I don't care if you're an atheist. If that's what you support, you're an asshole, and we don't want you on our team. Okay, so but if you uh, agree with certain economic policies that I don't agree with and we could have a discussion about it, we could figure out why you agree and we could figure out why people are allowing all of this money to get into politics. Why are we allowing right. all these special interest groups and lobbyists to interfere with our laws and yeah. influence our, our, our politicians and, and create all this shit that we don't want? Well, here's the number one reason you can't just vote online. You can't just vote. It's not one person, one vote. Right. It's the electoral college, and there's a lot of checks and balances that are in place. It's all wonderful and groovy, but it's not giving the trust to the people. Right. The trust to the people that are they're informed, that they can make their own decisions, that more people should be able to make these decisions. But they're happening now. That 28-year-old girl who who, who won know, in New York, 28-year-old Democratic Socialist. Whether I agree with her or not, and I don't know if I do or don't, I bet I agree with her on a lot of things. I think education should be free. I think we should figure out a way, if we could pay for bombs, we could pay for schools. This, the, I think the, this idea that everybody should have health care, it's a great idea. Who the fuck wants people to not be healthy? Who wants people to be hurt and not be able to fix it? Who wants? Do, do, are you really saying that struggling people should have to pay exorbitant amounts of money to get fixed when we could maybe chip in and help members of our right. team? That's stupid. Fill it up. Figure it out yourself. I had to. You got lucky, bitch. You got lucky you don't have leukemia. You didn't break both your legs mm. when you were 18. Your parents are dead. Right. You got lucky, piece of shit. You yeah. These are people on our team. Right. I'm not talking about people who are lazy, good for nothing, losers, mooching off the system. You're going to have that too. Well, we got to figure out how to educate people so that that happens less and less. That's what we got to figure out how to do. All right. This is Give Them an Argument. I am about to be speaking with uh, David Feldman and then uh, Emma Vigland, Nando Vila, David Griscom, of course, is here for another segment of Outlaws and Revolutionaries. The voice you just heard uh, was a clip from a couple of years ago from a podcaster and comedian Joe Rogan, uh, where he was talking about the Trump administration's family separation policy and why he thought that anybody who supported it was not on what he called team human. Now, Joe Rogan is far from a consistently progressive person. He's kind of all over the place. And that way, I actually think I wrote about this in an article that I wrote with Michael Brooks back in January when uh, Rogan endorsed Bernie Sanders that uh, Rogan is where a lot of Americans are at, which is to say that he's not a weird obsessive like us. He doesn't think about politics all the time. So he has a bunch of disparate political instincts that don't necessarily cohere together into a consistent worldview. That is absolutely true. But 
Uh, he does have some very un-Trump instincts uh, and even some very social democratic instincts on some issues. So when I saw in the last week since I saw you guys last that Rogan offered to host a four-hour debate uh, on his podcast with Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and Trump said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. Um, I know this is shocking because we're talking about Donald Trump, who normally thinks everything through very carefully. But uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think maybe Trump didn't think this one through. Uh, I think that he might not get as friendly reception there as he thought he would. Uh, but of course, Biden, as far as I know, has not yet responded in any way to this offer. Uh, I could talk about whether this would be a good move or a bad move for him. But what I would really like to happen is not, in fact, for uh, Biden uh, to, uh, to accept um, Rogan and Trump's offer. It would be for Biden to turn it down and then for Joe Rogan to say, uh, hey, Trump, come on, I'm going to debate you myself. How about it? Uh, and that sounds like the setup to a joke. But honestly, um, speaking as a debate nerd, my professional opinion is that, uh, is that Rogan, when he does have right-wing guests on, he has right-wing guests on all the time. He tends to nod along with everything they say, just like he nods along to Cornell West or Edward Snowden when they're on his show. He's a little all over the place. He's somewhat prone to believe conspiracy theories. He's very prone to agreeing with whatever his current guest says. But when he does engage with right-wing guests who say things he disagrees with, sometimes it's very, very good. So one more clip of that operated in a slim way but what the government doesn't do anything good right. name one problem you could possibly have in your life joe rogan that you'd be like get me get the government to solve this do they do the post office well no what like what do they do well they do the post office pretty good actually but guess what if the post office <laughs> closed tomorrow it would be all right you'd still get mail get would amazon suck. would pick no it wouldn't amazon would pick that things up through ups it would cost a lot more it wouldn't though competition would start kicking in and between ups and fedex and amazon and drones and blah 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 mm -hmm. and dhl they'd all start it would probably drop prices mm -hmm. because right now we've just got this artificial thing that sits there that then allows them to price according to that but if you drop that why is the government in that business anymore i, I have three chickens i've really on the Joe Rogan lifestyle here over the last couple of years. So I have three chickens right now. We had, I'm going to give you a good UPS story. We ordered them. They were born in August on a Monday in uh, Cleveland. They hatched that day. They threw them in a box with a little hole, USPS, and they showed up at my door in LA on a Tuesday. The USPS has been doing that for about a hundred It's the days. only way you can do it, by the way. You can't order chickens through any other method. Oh, is it just USPS? Yeah. So actually, I was giving the USPS credit there because my chickens all arrived live. Yeah, they send them to chicks. Yeah. That's the only way you're, you're buying these live chicks. That's the way you get them. You yeah. get them through the U.S. Postal Service. But you don't I'm get them through UPS. I'm pretty sure, though, that if the USPS stopped, it didn't exist anywhere, you'd still get chickens delivered. And Amazon could probably do it even more effectively. That's my point. It's like, I'm not saying these things have to be eliminated tomorrow. I'm not even really calling for them to be eliminated. But just generally... What problem would you, everything you're building here right now, right? Do you want the government to tell you how to do all these things and all the regulations that you got to have your electric thing this far from this and like well, all the, the regulations like that for construction are important though. You do have to make sure that people don't do stupid shit. But make but sure generally, you don't have a power line that's near a water line. That you, you, there's a lot of. But I would put most of that on the builders though. They want to build things that are good. Now I get it. Oh, get, that's not true. Listen, people. No, cut, no, people are going to build corners all the time. Like you have to have regulations when it comes to construction methods, they, or people are going to get fucked. They cut regulate. They cut 
cut corners when there are regulations anyway. They do. They would cut a lot more. That gives you an impression. You should watch the whole thing. Uh, it is very funny. But uh, right now, uh, we're going to be joined in just a few minutes by, uh, by Emma Vigland. Uh, but right now, we are joined... Uh, by David Feldman, uh, who, like Joe Rogan, is a comedian who uh, does a podcast where he talks about politics. In fact, they're basically the same person, uh, as far as I can tell. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you. And Dave Rubin is also a comedian. And yeah. he, he, for the first time in my life watching Dave Rubin, I'm actually ashamed to call myself a moron. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I now, he is... Are those, is there chicken protective services? What, I, I can't trust Dave Rubin with chickens. What, that, that's, that's scary, the idea of him raising chickens. Yeah. So you and Joe Rogan and Dave Rubin are basically all the same person because you're all uh, people with a background in comedy who do podcasts yes. where they talk about politics. And we're all geniuses. Comedians, yeah. uh, we're the canaries in the coal mine. We, we're just the smartest people out there. <laughs> we are effed. If people think that you should get your news and your philosophy from comedians, well, this is why we ended up the, the way we are. We're, we're, we give way too much respect to comedians. I think the thing with Rogan, the idea that, okay, he'll interview Donald Trump. And the great thing about Joe is he gives his guests enough rope to hang themselves, as we just saw. The problem is, we've already given Donald Trump enough rope to, to hang the entire country, which in fact is, is happening. It, we know, we, we know. The only way Trump can hurt himself as a candidate is to say something lucid and clear-headed. So. Yeah, because it'd be bad for the brand. It would be bad for the brand, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, like, I, I think, uh, you know, some of his advisors might have been nervous uh, last night. We're recording this on a Saturday. Most people aren't going to see it until Monday. Uh, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, passed away last night, and uh, Trump's initial reaction to it was, like, a politician's reaction. It was like, oh, that's that's terribly sad. And, right. you know, that just, I, I just can't, I just have to imagine. Uh, it's like, uh, you remember Bullworth? Sure. Warren Beatty, Halle Berry. Yeah. 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 I mean, like in a lot of ways, Trump is Republican Bullworth, you know, that, uh, uh, that he is this like entertaining figure who goes way off script and does things that should be political suicide, but somehow they have the opposite effect. And there's a scene, um, I'm going to spoil a movie from decades ago. Uh, but there's a scene at the end of Bullworth where, uh, where Bullworth, you know, is sort of calmed down at the end of the movie and he goes out to do a press conference. He's wearing a suit and his advisor's like, what are you doing? Right. Why are you wearing a suit? This isn't, this is how you got elected. Right. You know, you're, right. you're, you're off brand, you're off script. Uh, and so I have to imagine, you know, that like a good Trump advisor would have the same reaction that you should be, uh, you should be ranting about how uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, was really part of Antifa and, you know, she had the Chinese virus, you know, like, you know, what, what is this, like, just sort of respectfully noted her passing? I'm sorry, did you say something? I was thinking about Halle Berry. <laughs> did you, sure. I didn't hear a word you said. You know, I dated her sister, Dingle. Very hard to get rid of. This, this is golden material. This is I, I, I dumped Dingle, and she just would, anyway, yeah. 
I'm very optimistic uh, about the future. I am. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, great, great Supreme Court justice. And I would like to say that uh, considering what women get paid compared to men, she should be placed on the $73 bill. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. No, this, this is, this is good stuff. This is like, Thank uh, you. You, you should have a little gong behind you for, uh, you know, for like after you, uh, after you finish these jokes. I'm tr- what, these aren't jokes. These are observations. I'm just, I'm very, it's very uh, serious political commentary. Yeah. Very, very. Did I lose you uh, on the dingle? Are you jealous <laughs> that I dated her sis? They're, they're saying that, uh, Ted Cruz might replace Ginsburg. Have you heard that? Yeah, I mean, see, that would be on brand, right? Like, that would be about perfect. Like, Ted Cruz, actually, Ted Cruz is pretty good. Like, what would be really good is, like, Jared. Right. Like, Jared could be on the Supreme Court. That sounds about right. But Ted Cruz, I think you could fast-track Ted Cruz to the Supreme Court. I think McConnell could get Republicans and Democrats on both sides of the aisle to fast-track him to the Supreme Court because they all want to get him out of the Senate. Anything to get Ted Cruz out of the Senate. He is the most disliked man in Washington. So I think he could actually be on the Supreme Court before November 3rd. Yeah, I mean, look, in all seriousness, uh, I think that uh, I think that whether, uh, whether Ted Cruz, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure the Trump's, you know, going to pick some. A well-groomed Federalist Society ghoul, you know, who's who's been training for this for their entire with a life. rape record. Hopefully, he'll have a rape record. Sure, I mean that's yeah, pretty I mean, standard that's, at this point. Yeah, yeah. Got to stay on brand. That's right. Yeah, that like yeah, somebody who was part of you know uh, the like Brett Kavanaugh's like group, and you know that he went out to like rent vacation cottages with, you know, uh, and uh, and you know, throw up all over them and lose, you know, and lose the money that they spent <laughs> on the deposit, right, you know, and has since then right. devoted his life in some suburb where he's been, like, carefully cultivated um, in Northern Virginia for, like, decades, you know, like the born identity, right, you know, that you spend your entire life pretending, you know, preparing for this moment so that you can get in there and you can destroy what's left of collective bargaining in American workplaces right. and, uh, and destroy the ability of the regulatory state to protect the environment and, you know, all the other stuff that, you know, makes these people tick, you know, makes them get up right. in the morning. But, uh, but I really, I mean, I have an incredibly hard time imagining uh, that there's anything that, um, that like Chuck Schumer will or even particularly wants to try to do to to stop this i mean i'd love to be surprised by that but um i mean maybe not by november 3rd but you know you don't have to get in by no if there are going to be months of challenges to the outcome of the election you don't have to get in by november 3rd good times yeah good times no, a lot to look for. i think one day we're all going to look back at this and have a good long cough i think it's not as bad as when- I don't think it's as bad as it seems. I think we're just too deep into it. I, I, I'm very optimistic. All right. Good stuff. Uh, so uh, <laughs> we are now also joined uh, by, uh, by Emma Vigland um, from, uh, from the Young Turks, who I always used to uh, really enjoy watching on uh, the Michael Brooks show. How are you doing today, Emma? I'm good. I'm good. I'm in my casual wear. Um, 
the comfiest sweatshirt I could find and I uh, apologize for the sun glare. I just like, I can't afford curtains. So this is where we're at. <laughs> well, I mean, it could be worse. You could be wherever yeah. David is, uh, is, is joining us right. from. That, whatever hellscape that what? is. Oh, oh, the TV on the floor. I know. I, 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 I'm moving the TV into the other room. I want to read more. I, I, yeah. Right, oh. right. Yeah. Otherwise, you have an interior decorator who's just top notch. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So uh, it's been a fun year. Everything that's happened in the last several months is awesome. Um, you know, all very happy about it. That, you know, like things were looking a little bad at the beginning that, you know, Bernie Sanders looked like he might be, get the Democratic nomination, and obviously that would have been terrible. But uh, since then, things have really been looking up. Uh, it's been very positive. Uh, I think last count, uh, we are rounding off about 200,000 uh, coronavirus deaths. Uh, and But if uh, you take that, away the blue states, Ben, that's basically <laughs> zero. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's only 20,000 or something if you take away all the states that don't count. Literally what yeah. Trump said, and I saw someone tweeted like, uh, well, if you take away the, the blue states on 9-11, no one died. So, <laughs> that is looking good. on the bright side, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's true, right? Like, and even... Um, and, uh, and even even Washington DC, right, where the Pentagon was, you know, was, was hit. I mean, it's not, it doesn't have statehood, right? You know, because obviously we don't allow people in that city. It to, has, to... it has deep statehood, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. But yeah, but you know, certainly it, it votes, you know, for, for Democrats, you know, when it can. So it's, it's basically like, you know, like a blue state. So yeah, you take those away, then, you know, not nobody, but a few people in Pennsylvania, you know, it wasn't that bad. Right. Totally. So, yeah, uh, I think, so we got, uh, depending on how you count it, you know, 200,000 or a lot less people die of uh, coronavirus. Uh, think about, you know, half the country is literally on fire. Uh, that might be an exaggeration, but, you know, but a lot of stuff is on fire. Uh, I've, you know, I see pictures from my little brother who lives in California of the sky turned blood red, you know, which is, uh, which is nice and appropriate uh, for, uh, for everything else that's, uh, that's gone on. And uh, just to cap it off, as I was just uh, discussing with, with David, you know, we got this, some very solid material, I think there that he'd been practicing in uh, the cat skills in 1955 uh, that, uh, that Donald Trump gets another Supreme court justice. So things are really, really, really looking up. Yeah, I mean, I heard you guys talking a little about the possibility of Ted Cruz. And for me, uh, I mean, Josh Hawley, he also floated, right? Who's uh, a senator who wants to run for president in 2024. This is to me, and it was actually a point made to me by one of my colleagues, a clear attempt for Trump, an inartful attempt to clear the field for someone like Don Jr. in 2024. Uh, seriously, though, Um this Trump brand name is not going to go away with the Republican base. So uh, Cruz obviously wants to run again in 2024, but he can't run if he's got a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. But like, he's I think I think Don like Jr. would be a great Supreme Court justice. Of course, everybody would have to wear white robes and a hood. <laughs> right. Yeah. And just grease their hair so that they're <laughs> flammable with every move they make. Um, they can't even set foot in California without combusting spontaneously. 
So I, uh, obviously I, um, it's interesting, uh, but the, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg news, just really the cherry on top of, of a fantastic year. I almost forgot that Bernie Sanders, just the, the hopes for the nomination, that was still in 2020, and then it came crashing down in March. I was there. I was at uh, headquarters yeah. of Super Tuesday in Vermont in Burlington. It was not a fun time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I can imagine, right? Like, so, and this is really hard to remember because this sounds like we're talking about something that happened during the Ford administration, but in February, <laughs> right, that Bernie had just completed the hat trick of Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. Uh, I went to, I went to Nevada, uh, and, uh, like just before, just before the caucus, um, Stayed with somebody I only knew for Twitter, from Twitter, so I probably could have been axe murdered, but I wasn't. Right, and uh, you survived. Yeah, I, we we I, were going to meet up, but I, I we didn't have the the opportunity. That stunk. Yeah, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and then you know, and then right. the, the days of being able to meet in person were over. But uh, but there was there was this minute there when that looked inevitable. That uh, at the very least, like the entire mainstream political discussion was okay, Bernie is obviously going to show up to the convention with more delegates than anybody else. But if that's not, if it's just a plurality, it's not an outright majority, is it okay to give it to somebody else on the second round, right? That was the conversation that was going on back at the end of February. And then Super Tuesday happened, and then uh, an apocalyptic plague happened. And then um, since then, like, I mean, we haven't hit zombies yet, but I mean, like that, that seems, that seems inevitable, right? I mean, like that seems the, like the direction that things have been, uh, have been trending in. Uh, and I, I think that there's, I think that, so that there, there can be like this sense of like grim inevitability. It's like, okay, yeah, what else you got, right? I mean, of course, of course things are going to happen this way. Uh, which which can be bad in its own way, but I also see what strikes me, and actually, I'd be curious about your your take on this, right? Um, as this uh, weird overconfidence still from a lot of people about the election, like that 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 Biden just uh, just has it in the bag that he can't lose, which seems particularly weird to me because I, you know, I get deja vu, right? I mean, like I I, I remember this from 2016 and in 2016 at least Hillary volunteers could theoretically like go out and knock on doors and talk to people in person. Is this for, uh, I didn't know if this was directed for me, but, uh, but yeah, no, um, I do, I do, uh, get frustrated by the overconfidence. I'm reminded I'm a big sports fan and there's these analytics like fanboys when they talk about, you know, NFL or stuff like that, right? And they think they can see the whole picture based on numbers as opposed to watching the game when you can see, okay, this receiver is clearly more talented than this, but the game script doesn't dictate that he's getting the ball or whatever. And that's kind of how I feel about the election in many ways. If you're unable to see the forest through the trees and you're only like a Nate Silver data fanboy and you're going to check out, ooh, around the margins in this Pennsylvania county here, Biden's doing great. But you can't see that he's barely speaking full sentences. That's a problem. And you can't uh, see the full picture of the election without those very real concerns. So I think Biden's in a significantly better position than Hillary Clinton was mm. in many ways. One, 
the desire for stability is tangible in the country. People are desperate for some sort of strong hand at the top who's going to uh, push the country in the right direction. I mean, I read a study on how many people would trust a vaccine that comes out around election day and it's a majority of Americans that say, I wouldn't take that. And because the whole process has become politicized and when you're in a crisis like this, people don't want that. So that is huge in Biden's favor, but everything else is disastrous. Biden is unable to talk and that is like not something that the media ignores and it's just going to go away. It's a huge issue. And when it undercuts his pitch to be the steady leader when Trump is like, this guy's mentally unfit and he's going to rallies every night and like bringing the house down. So there is some of that dynamic, but I'm, I'm not going to lie and say that Biden's in a similar position as Hillary Clinton, because Trump now has to defend his record and, Everyone wakes up in the morning, they're in quarantine, they've lost their job, their sister, their aunt died of COVID-19, whatever it may be. People understand that things are bad in the country right now, and Trump has to overcome that. And I think that's a significantly larger hurdle than Biden having to overcome the things I just mentioned. Is there a virtue to nominating somebody who can't string a sentence together? Eisenhower couldn't. Reagan couldn't. George Mm -hmm. W. Bush couldn't. Maybe. Maybe people see that. But like Bush, people just were like, that guy's stupid, kind of like me, right? Uh, Biden, most people are like, that guy's senile. (laughs) Yeah, right. That was Reagan's charm. Well, well, Reagan was, but I think that a lot of that was, especially at first, right? My understanding is like that that wasn't like right out in the open, right? Like, like Reagan wasn't. It was second. It was more second term Reagan from my understanding of when he already had deregulated and given the economy this massive sugar high that people were like, this is never going to end until it totally did. That's my guess, but. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, And and Reagan wasn't like, yeah, like, I I think maybe it like became a little bit more obvious as the second term went on. I think maybe if like social media had existed, some things that could just sort of fly by the radar, some journalists would kind of mention in their book two or, you know, two years later, would maybe have been bigger deals, uh, you know, when Reagan would get confused about his own history as, uh, as an actor and like think that he was like, in Europe in World War Two. Uh, but, but but being I, vague, yeah. being senile, or being stupid or inarticulate allows voters to hear what they want to hear. If you're predisposed to vote for Biden and he can't string a sentence together, then you do it for him internally. He's like a hot medium. Marshall McLuhan talked about this. So you do the work for him and see in him whatever you want to see, kind of like what we did with Obama. So th- this may be, this may work. Unfortunately, I'm rooting for Biden. This may work for him. This so, may okay, I hope. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope so, right? I mean, I, th- I think I've been clear on that, right? That like um, Biden, I, I don't think we should lie about it, right? Like I, I think that, I think that Biden politically is what he has always been and, and will be, right? Like I think this idea that Biden, um like that anything that he says right now where he sort of vaguely gestures at some sort of quasi green new deal or anything like that. Right. Like I, I don't 
take any of that very seriously. But right, like uh, I also don't think that he is going to be crusading to try to do the things that uh, that Trump has already been doing and would continue to do in in a second term, like you know destroy what's left of public sector unions and uh, and destroy much of what's left of the regulatory state. Right? Like I don't think he would do those things. And so I think as a defensive thing, yeah, right. I mean, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll suck it up and vote for him, but, uh, but uh, I don't know. I mean, David, like you, you said that you think that the, the vagueness, you know, can, can work well for him. Uh, but what's your feeling about the debates, right? Like, like, is, is that, uh, you know, cause Donald Trump is very good at that, right? I understand like he wasn't good in the debates with Hillary. He was okay. Right. But like, you know, Hillary, quote unquote, won, right? You know, whatever that means. But but, but let me just quickly yeah. say then, like, I again, I was at two of the debates the entire, and I'm in the media room, right? And people are like visibly gasping whenever Trump, remember when he said, you know, she's like, I'm so grateful that someone like Donald Trump is not in charge of uh, appointing an attorney general or something like that. And he goes, that's because you'd be in jail. Right. And like, to me, that was an unbelievable political moment that still resonates with me to this day. And honestly, with her perception as a criminal, it was a political win. But then the entire pundit class thought she won the debates where I don't see that, you know, it's all about memorability and, and one-liners and he made it a WWE contest, but sorry. I yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Actually, uh, if you read uh, Matt Taibbi bespoke uh, Hate Inc., he's got this extended metaphor in there about Trump and the WWE and how if you look at the way that in uh, wrestling uh, audiences can start to root for heels, like you can see a lot of what's going on with Trump's appeal. Right. Uh, but, but I was going to say, right, that like whatever you think about, you know, I did those debates with Hillary, uh, when he was ripping his way through the rest of the Republican field in 2016, that he was very, very good at, right? Like, oh, and, it was, I still love watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, right? Him ripping on Ted Cruz to his face, I, it's like the most I've ever liked Trump in my life. <laughs> yeah, him, him slamming um, Jeb. Uh, Jeb, right, you know, and, and, and talking about, you know, his, his mother and Jeb's like, my mother is amazing. And, you know, Trump says, oh, yeah, maybe she should be president. Right? Like, <laughs> like, he's like, just as like, he's, he's very, oh, my God, the thing that like the Ted, the uh, Marco Rubio, you know, the bottle of water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, I mean, he is a very, very talented insult comic. But there's and, no, but there's no audience. That's not a good point. Crowd. There, there isn't. So you think? So you think that this wouldn't be like that? That you that like that the force of of Donald Trump's skills and insult comic coming up against Biden's occasional inability to tell his sister from from his wife, right? That that's right. a thing that happened a few months ago. Well, he's appealing uh, to the Alabama vote. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so, but you think you think that the that the debates will actually be good for Biden? He did really well against Bernie when there was no audience because of the COVID-19. So I think it's going to be a a test to see who looks more presidential because there's no audience. It won't be the freak show. It won't be the wrestling match we're looking for, I hope. And I thought that Biden did a pretty good job against Sarah Palin, just smiling and looking vice presidential. And I thought he did a good job with Ryan. So I, I think I think Biden may surprise us. He just has to 
It just has to do well. It doesn't have to do great. And don't, and don't forget, you know, I remember watching the Reagan-Carter debate, the first one. I was smoking a lot of dope at the time, but I thought, man, this is hysterical. I can't believe anybody would even consider Ronald Reagan as president. And then the next day, the punditocracy and the people said Reagan won. Yeah. And I mean, like, look, I mean, there's a question about how much these things ever actually matter. I think maybe sometimes they matter when um, when you're in a situation like Bloomberg was in in uh, in the Democratic primaries where it just becomes quickly obvious that you're that you don't have this skill and, and you and you somehow didn't expect to have to defend your record. And, and, and he was just kind of eaten alive um, in, you know, in that debate, right? Uh, and that probably really did hurt him. I mean, I think there's some evidence for that, you know, from, from Bloomberg volunteers and things like that. But If uh, I were advising Joe Biden, I would tell him, don't go negative. Don't say, don't criticize Trump. You already have your minions doing that. Sell your platform to the American people. Just stand in front of the American people. Everybody's watching, and no matter what he calls you, Sleepy Joe, he brings up the sun, tell the American people, what you have to offer them. He, he has yeah, to do lie. a lot of that. Mention. And lie to the American people. Lie, Joe. Lie. <laughs> Emma? <laughs> well, he, he certainly has to do a lot more of selling himself. Um, there's a significant amount of anti-Trump sentiment that you can ride, but we saw in 2016 that it's certainly not enough. But the difference between 2016 is the Hillary factor. I mean... She was severely unliked, remains extremely unliked. She was the subject of decades of Republican propaganda against her, much of which was not earned. The left-wing criticisms of Hillary Clinton certainly earned, but a lot of things made up, um, books written about her, Dinesh D'Souza documentaries made about her, just constantly putting her as the face of corruption in Washington, and that hurt her so much, especially when Trump called her crooked. So that connected, right? Those two things made sense for people. Biden, people don't feel that way about him. And that's huge. And there's an enormous polling shift in trustworthiness. In 2016, around this time, Trump had like 20 points on Hillary Clinton and who was a more trustworthy candidate, which should have sent off alarm bells for everybody. And now you look at trustworthiness and Trump is around, I think, 20 points less than Biden. That's huge. That's a huge metric. And I think one of the polling, pieces of polling data that should be taken seriously. There's there's a lot that shouldn't be, but. Right. There's been a shift in American politics. It used to be axiomatic that you couldn't elect a senator with a track record. You always had to nominate for president an outsider like Reagan, like George W. Bush, like Jimmy Carter, like Bill Clinton. These were all outsiders because they didn't have a paper trail. Even Obama, yeah. you can say, was an outsider. Because Absolutely. Fresh yeah, he'd only been in for a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because you cannot run a Washington insider because they end up saying, I voted for that bill before I voted against it. Remember the carry that we, you know, every time you try to run a Washington insider or somebody with a, a track record in Washington, D.C. There's just too much garbage to dig up on them. Bernie would have probably, well, 
He was an outsider, but not really. Well, I mean, he was he was an outsider in that he wasn't identified with the establishment, and and I think that he got a lot of mileage out of that. And I think there is some evidence that he did he did better with uh, well, independents for sure, and and even persuadable Republicans uh, because of that, right? Plus, because his message, you know, like obviously resonated. Trump uh, was the ultimate. Yeah, Trump was the ultimate outsider, at least perceived that way. Yeah, right. Although it's interesting because I remember at the very first debate that Trump was in, uh, in the Republican primaries, one of his lines that I didn't really hear him repeat much afterwards, uh, but it was like this weirdly honest thing was like he was talking about how he knew that all the other politicians on the stage were super corrupt because he he gave them all money and then they did mm-hmm. things for him. Yeah, that was incredible. Um, I mean, that also bolstered the whole drain the swamp narrative. I'll never forget the first political event I went to. I'm like name dropping all these events I went to, but I don't mean to do that. It's just like, it sticks, these things stick out in my mind and don't worry. I I stay at a holiday inn or like a a comfort (laughs) inn. TYT does not uh, roll out the red carpet. But the first event I went to ever as an intern was I went to uh, Trump's speech after Bernie Sanders had basically officially conceded uh, at Trump Soho. I believe, in New York. And he uh, just goes in on how Bernie was right. Um, Bernie's an outsider. The DNC completely uh, manhandled him and screwed him over. And it was Hillary Clinton. And a lot of this landed because he, there was truth to it. Same with the crooked Hillary thing. The best political narratives that are used dishonestly in the way he does begin with a kernel of truth. And that's Trump's better at that than anybody, but he's not doing that effectively with Biden. One of the stupidest things he's doing is trying to tie Biden to rioting and looting while at the same time criticizing the crime bill and saying, oh, he's locking up all of these black and brown people. Which which one is it? Is he buddy-buddy with the rioters and looters? And is he weak on crime? Or did he push through a draconian, terrible crime bill, the reality, and is... Uh, the the candidate that's actually more aligned with your position. That's true. But there's an incoherence and an inconsistency to the way he's going about things as opposed to like glomming on to the populist outsider rhetoric and, and, and talking about money and politics in a very odd way. Um, well, there's also a weird reversal there, right? Like, because in, in 2016... I missed what you said then, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, there's also like a weird reversal there because in 2016... Uh, like I said, he was going to drain the swamp and like he was all about like talking about how Hillary Clinton was part of the establishment. Uh, the last campaign ad he did before the election was full of like images of Goldman Sachs. Uh, and, and that was his, his pitch, right? I mean, that the, you know, that, um, that Hillary was representing, you know, the globalists and, you know, and, and, and the people who are, you know, keeping down, you know, working class Americans. Uh, and now, it seems like there's still some of that, but like, it seems like he's kind of done a 180. that like, that now, like it's, instead of, instead of attacking Biden the way that he attacked Hillary uh, as being too cushy with the 1%, uh, he's trying to say that, that Biden, like that he's a communist. Yeah, exactly. And, and right. Um, shoot. I, I totally forget my point. Uh, well, he's it, a wrecking ball. And in many ways he can make an argument that he did drain the swamp 
because we have lost faith in the entire swamp. It doesn't matter. We know what the truth is, that he's looting the swamp. But if you're a voter and you're angry, he has kept his promise of destroying the He's destroyed everything. He's destroyed the FBI. He destroyed the Justice Department, the EPA, everything. The CDC, he didn't just drain the swamp. He took a wrecking ball to it. And granted, he's making money off of it. But if you're angry, if you're faith, facing eviction, if you're out of work, if you're without health care and you don't see Joe Biden offering you a solution, F everybody, take a wrecking ball to all of it. Yeah, that's a, it's a great point because, and it goes back to the point you made about how Biden needs to make his case. Why is he not out every day saying, where are the second stimulus checks? Where are the second $1,200 payments? Where is the eviction moratorium? Where is the, uh, you know, unemployment benefits. Why are we reducing them when people still can't get get jobs? I mean, it's the biggest no-brainer ever, but partly that's because it would simultaneously expose the weakness uh, and terrible negotiation tactics of Pelosi and Schumer, but it's a no-brainer politically, and that is such a small uh, piece of ground to seed for the overall picture of winning. I, I, I You know, I spent 30 years working in Hollywood. Lying is just good manners. It's just (laughs) good manners to lie to somebody. And and the the least you can do as a politician is lie to me. Make promises that that you can't keep. Why why is Joe or Amy Klobuchar or Kamala being pragmatic? Why why is pragmatic? Like, marry me, honey. You know, we'll lose interest romantically eventually, and I'll be a bad father. I'm going to be upfront with you. I'm a, I'm a bad, <laughs> I, and I don't shower every day, and I don't shave. I, I want to be upfront with you. You're not going to, you're not going to be happy. But you know what? When we die, we won't owe the credit card company anything. <laughs> Will you marry me? Lied it, lot which is which is which is, an, which is an ironic example because uh, one of Joe Biden's legislative accomplishments was making it harder for people <laughs> right. to not owe money to the credit card companies. Right? Like <laughs> that was the you know that's the bankruptcy bill, right? You know that full was, circle, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, it's uh, transactional in Washington, except for the voters. They're always asking me for five dollars, and I write back. They don't answer okay, I'm going to give you $5. How much do I get back in return when you're, when you're in office? I want $10. Show me how you got me. To, that's how we have to look at it. All right. Well, on that inspiring note, thank you, David. Uh, so I, I, I really appreciate up my, it. I cleaned up for this. I, that's it. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could tell you did a great job of cleaning thank this. Thank you. <laughs> it was very impressive. I know, the TV on the floor. I, 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 yeah, I didn't that is time. The, that is the fly in the ointment, right? Otherwise, that is just impeccable. Um, Perfect is the enemy of good, and never forget that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, if, you, if, um, if you're listening to this as a podcast, um, David Feldman, uh, he, he has a very well-kept room, right? There's a TV on the floor, but otherwise, like, there, there's not a speck of dust to be seen. It's very <laughs> impressive. Um, but... Uh, Thank but you. You should uh, you should listen to uh, to the David Feldman show, uh, which is actually uh, twice a week. That's uh, that, that we comes record. Out. Yeah, we re- it's Tuesdays and 
Fridays and it drops at 3 a.m. Each episode is only eight hours. So, <laughs> okay, that's 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 good. That's good. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much, David. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, talk to you very, very soon. <laughs> so, uh, we're going to, uh, bring on, uh, Nando Vila. Uh, Emma, can you stick around for a few minutes? Sure. Yeah, I uh, probably got to duck out soon, but, you know, I'm busy, busy, busy on a Saturday for some reason. <laughs> Fair enough. There we go. All right. Nando, you're muted. I'm um, doing like the old man thing. How about now? Yeah, good. Okay. I'm doing like the old man thing, like where I'm talking on the Zoom. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm muted. Uh, what's up, guys? Hey. Emma, it's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. You know, it's um, it's fun to be on with two fellow guests of the Let's Pot It Out Entourage podcast. Oh, exactly. I thought you were going uh, frequent TMBS guests, but sure, yeah. Well, uh, the, uh, yeah, but this but this was this was I think the highlight for for both me and Emma, uh, like like you know of of anything that we've done, right? You know, okay, been on TMBS, that's nice, right? You know, it's, it's nice, more, it's good. You now that's it's it's yeah, yeah, right. Like like it's a it's it's okay, right? It's a it's a thing you can right. do, right? You know, but like really, what you got to call your mom to brag about is going on. Let's pot it out, which is a Entourage rewatch podcast. Uh, that uh, Nando and got to remind me, uh, Miguel Miguel Tamayo, Miguel Tamayo have been doing since uh, the beginning of the pandemic, and as somebody who spent way too much time uh, several years back uh, watching Entourage, uh, it's it's been a really pleasure to uh, revisit that. I think uh, yeah, I think I was a little too uh, too cruel about the show. On I didn't realize like the full. Uh, podcast was just devoted to Entourage. Like I thought that might have been something fun that was just being done, but no, it's an Entourage podcast. No, Emma, you were. I think you. you no, no offense to you, Ben. I think Emma, you were the best guest we had. Oh, wow, uh, thank you. It was uh, you were you were spectacular, but uh, but thanks for having me on. You know, I was listening to the, uh, Dave Feldman talk about like how you know polite it is to lie to you and it's, there's this thing in the in the Washington media which is a similar thing that happens in the sports media which drives me crazy in which the media enforces lying like the biggest sin you can commit in Washington and in sports like as if you're an athlete is to say what's on your mind and tell the truth you know like when you tell the truth on something like the sports pundits and the sports writers like kill you for it even though they oh, should yeah. be like they should be doing the opposite they should be begging more athletes to tell them the truth because it's more interesting. It gives them more content. But what they really want is for them to, you know, kind of uh, just say like the, the cliche of giving 110% every game and it's all about my yeah. teammates, it's all about winning. I don't actually care about how many receptions I've had or how many receiving yards I had in this game. As long as we win, you know, like if, as soon as the athlete just says what they actually believe, the pundits like jump down their throat. And similarly in Washington, when a politician says what they actually believe or the truth, uh, the pundits jump down their throat. And it's like, no, you should, we should be rewarding that. We should be, but it's just like this weird kind of kabuki thing that goes on. Well, which, which is, goes back to what we were talking about with, with Feldman, right? Which is uh, that this is a big part of the Trump appeal that even though obviously, you know, he does lie all the time, whatever, but like, he's super unfiltered in a way that gives the impression yes. 
that anything that he says he must really think because he's telling you everything that crosses his mind. Have you seen this like guy, David, was Daniel Dale on CNN, who's like the libs love these days? And he oh, just yeah, like, the, goes the on fast CNN. talking fact checker. Uh, he's the like fast talking ben, fact checker. Ben Shapiro yeah. for libs. Yes, exactly. He's the fast talking fact checker. He's got the facts. Boom, 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 gunslinger. And, um, you know, the libs love him because he's like, oh my God, this latest Trump thing was a tsunami of lies. And then he goes, blah, 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 through all the lies. The thing is, when you're just counting up Trump's lies, like in a weird way, Trump is true to himself, you know, which is a central honesty. Whereas, you know, when Hillary Clinton said, uh, you know, I'm going to put something like, I'm going to put working families first. Like Daniel Dale can't fact check that, but everyone who knows Hillary Clinton and what she's about knows that that's a lie, that she's not being true to herself. Right. Um, So there's like a central lie to some of these like kind of establishment democratic politicians and even some establishment Republican politicians that everyone kind of senses, even if what the words that are coming out of their mouth cannot be fact checked as quote unquote lies. No, right? no, it's totally true. And I, I, I think also um, someone who I think is really smart was making the point why he thinks Trump's going to win again. Um, and he was saying that it's the, the amount of lying in Washington has become so quotidian and people have become so uh, used to it, really, that they can't see what's what. And so even material conditions aren't being connected to politics in the way that they used to be. So I was saying, how could Trump really win again when material conditions are so bad, when we're in an economic depression and there's mass unemployment and uh, there's, uh, you know, protests in the streets, all of that. But when politicians lying and everything is is so um, muddied and the Democratic Party hasn't made their case as an opposition party to say, oh, this is how things could be different, then how can you make the connection between the leader of the country and how you're literally feeling? Like, that's been such a huge failure of the Democratic Party is being like, no, the reason that you don't have any savings anymore are because of these policies. Here's what we do differently because they wouldn't do much differently. But that's the point, right, is there's been no factual making of the case because it's all this one big lie and so I don't know if people are making that connection anymore. That's what would do Biden in, I think. If we're, yeah. that, if we're that far gone. I don't know. Yeah, right, right. And I mean, we might be. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Biden is, you know, Biden is ahead and Biden is ahead in all the swing states. And he's doing better than Hillary was at this point. That's all true, right? Uh, but it's also true that uh, that the election's not happening, you know, for another month and a half. Uh, and that... Uh, and that the pandemic really limits your ability to canvas in a normal way. Uh, and I don't know, right? Like, I, I think the Republican base is probably a bit, you know, better at motivating itself to go out to the polls. Uh, so I, I think it's still very, uh, very losable, right? Like, if I had to bet, sure, right? You know, I would say, um, you know, yeah, right. Obviously, Biden's probably going to win. Right? But I, I think there's also some really weird overconfidence about that. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, these, these latest rash of stories, and apologies if you guys already spoke about it, but just the, the complete and utter, even attempt to campaign the, you know, this reporter uh, for Time Magazine that was like went out looking for the, the field office in Michigan, the Biden field office in Michigan, and they kept on kind of lying to him. Um, and he's like, no, but just give me the address. I'll go there and I'll show up. And they're like, well, what do you mean by what do you mean by field office? And it's like, well, do you have anyone on the ground? It's like, what do you mean by on the ground? You know, <laughs> like it was just like this uh, kind of bizarre, uh, you know, like almost metaphysical debate that he's having with the Biden campaign of like, what does it really mean to campaign? You know, like, <laughs> and they're, they're just not even trying. It's like they're playing prevent defense in the first quarter is like what it feels like to me. Um, and that typically is a recipe for disaster. I mean, I don't know. They might limp across the finish line, but it's going to be um, – they're going to cut it as, po- as close as it possibly can get, um, despite the fact that it's like Trump has like historical negatives, like historical weakness, the, the opportunity to um, flip a, you know, to an incumbent, which is rare in American politics, like is, couldn't be riper. You know, like any kind of halfway decent campaign should blow him out of the water. Um, but, but they're going to make it close. Yeah. But, I, but I do think that the larger point too, though, is like the appearance of truth telling isn't resonating as truth telling much anymore. Um, and I think yeah. that that is key because people now just see him as a liar. I mean, and, and I know limbs want to say everything's the silver bullet, like this new Woodward thing. Oh my God. No, but it is another data point that I think has accumulated over time. Nothing's a silver bullet with this guy, right? He's just got, he's like Teflon, but there's, there are Teflon some things gone. that. That's that, exactly what they said about Reagan. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah well. Teflon Ron. There we go. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 saw, I saw you say uh, Nando on, on the uh, Jacobin weekends show that you've been reading um, the. Uh, that's that's why I'm sounding smart right now. I've been reading the post <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Riganland. Uh Yeah, I, I have been very slowly listening to the audible version of that, like one dog walk at a time or whatever. So I think I'm right. still in 1979. I'm going to be right. done with the book in like 10 years. Uh, <laughs> right. But 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 yeah, right. I mean, like like people people did say that about Reagan, uh, kind of correctly, right? Because because he did survive a lot of very weird scandals all the time. Yeah. You know, those books, uh, uh, you know, they're both liberals, but the Robert Caro books on Lyndon Johnson and the Rick Perlstein book on, uh, like, on the basically the rise of the modern American right, those series of books, like everything you know, need to know about American politics is probably like in those books in some way, shape or form. Like they really, the feeling that you get reading. Tell me, Leando, uh, I'm writing it down. All the Rick Perlstein books. It's, Rick Perlstein, like, okay. Yeah, yeah Reaganland, Nixonland. Yeah. yeah, Before the Storm. There's Invisible the Invisible Bridge. Bridge. And then the Robert Caro, C-A-R-O, all his books right. on Lyndon Johnson, plus the Power Broker as well, because that's separate, but also amazing. Um, amazing, amazing things to read for everyone in the audience. But the point uh, that I find so, the, so interesting about most of Rick's, of all of Rick's Pearl, Pearlstein's books is just like how the fault lines in the culture war kind of were created and how remarkably similar they are to today. You know, how little they've changed. You know, it's, it's it, this, the, the, this is something that Matt Taibbi talks about a lot where it's like every single emergency kind of seems like this hair on fire emergency now. But you, when you read those books, you see like this was the, this is the same pattern, the same kind of culture war that we're fighting and going crazy over um, were present in the 1970s and in the, even in the late 60s. And, and um, yeah, I mean, it just really gives you like a sense of 
perspective, which is in a way kind of comforting, but also, you know, it makes it seem like, well, what can, how do we break out of this if it's been going on for 40 years? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was, that was very insightful. But before Emma has to go and, and I'll oh, yeah, talk yeah. to you about Latin America, uh, I, do have, I do have one favor to ask, Nando. Could, could you repeat yes. what you just said, but do it in the voice that you do when you're doing Vince's lines from Entourage in the podcast? yeah okay so you know like if you you know i was talking to this chick and she was like hey do you know anything about american politics and i was like hey no i don't i was like what can books can i read and so i read rick prostein's books about american politics and i was like hey now i know now i know i think about politics man like you know like ronald reagan i thought he was cool but he's not that cool that's my vince the the charisma of someone who lands multiple (laughs) big roles in hollywood yes absolutely yeah all right guys i got Got something else to do. See you later. Later, Emma. Yeah, right. T- Thank I'm you doing so a thing much, for Emma. TYT, a Twitch. I don't even know what the hell that is, but I got to do it. So if anyone, oh, wants you're doing to the watch, movie watch. Yeah, if anyone wants to watch me watch on and not on trash. Oh, if anyone <laughs> wants to watch me watch the, I think it's going to be Inception based on what I've heard that they voted mm. for me. So It'll I'm going to blow your mind, man. Yeah, man, my mind's going to melt everywhere. It's going to explode on camera. If you want to watch that. Uh, Figure, go to my Twitter. I don't know. Uh, it's it's somewhere. <laughs> I'm great at promotion. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Nando. Right. Thank you so much. See you. see you guys. All right, that was uh, Emma Vigland uh, from the Young. One Tri- of the best. Uh, yes, lovely, absolutely. lovely person. Very much so. Um, and uh, and yes, you should uh, you should <laughs> listen to her talk about the episode of Entourage where the guys go to Sundance. Uh, yes. it's uh, it's 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 good stuff. And uh, and and also, I thought that was very brave of you bringing a girl on the show. Uh, I know, but, it was crazy. Ooh, I was really nervous. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> uh, but we're uh, we've got. Uh, talking to Nando Vila, who, besides the Entourage podcast, does a bunch of other stuff, uh, including the uh, Jacobin uh, Weekend show, which I was, uh, I was just watching earlier, uh, and is always uh, very insightful about this stuff. And he has, uh, and you know, we were just talking about the American election, and wanted to, want to kind of switch gears a little bit uh, and and talk about Latin America. Although it's it's worth kind of lingering on the connection for a minute here, because we were just talking about the election, and I think that there's like something that's a little frustrating sometimes uh, if you're around certain kinds of progressive media uh, that people tend often to talk about the election, electoral politics, what you should think about Biden Trump, in one of two ways that both seem pretty unhelpful. Right, one uh, is to is to say uh, there's no difference. It's not even harm reduction. Uh, it's actually better if, uh, if if Trump wins because that's only four more years. And then you can get your magic, you know, intervention where you get somebody like Bernie Sanders. Whereas with Biden, it's going to be eight years, which I've always thought was a bizarre argument because elections happen every four years. And frankly, I doubt that Biden has two terms in him. And also one of the reasons that Biden won the Democratic primary was because primary voters had this deep longing to go back to normal after four years of Trump. And I can't even imagine how much stronger that would be after eight years, right? I, th- I think a Bernie-like figure would be destroyed, right? Would have a much harder time, right? At, in mm. uh, 2024, after eight years of Trump, I think that'd be very, very good for the centrist. But that's one frustrating way people talk about it. The other frustrating way that people talk about it 
is the sort of progressives for, for Biden kind of version where you do the opposite thing and you say, well, Biden's not perfect, right? You know, the, the Democrats aren't perfect. Um, but, you know, but I mean, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty good. You know, it's pretty close to what we want. And of course, that's also complete nonsense, right? So yeah. just, as, just, as, just as one small example of that, um, look at uh, the previous Democratic nominee, Hillary Clinton, uh, when she uh, when she was Secretary of State, she uh, uh, she was there while there was a coup against the elected government uh, in Honduras, and she uh, she bragged in the first edition of her book about how she had intervened <laughs> to stop the elected president president of Honduras, who of course she referred to as a left wing strongman, from coming back to power. That's what I call myself, a left wing strongman, you know, but, uh, you know, and it's, and it's, uh, the libs do this thing where that's very annoying where it's like, well, how could we have known, you know, like he did do some bad things, you know, we, we couldn't know what was going to happen, but uh, like in Latin America at the time, basically universal condemnation of the coup in Honduras, like the United States was alone uh, in in the Western Hemisphere and its support for the coup in Honduras. There was like, you know, every single government uh, in the region was essentially opposed to this because they saw the game perfectly clear. Um, and, you know, what's happened since in Honduras is like just never discussed here. I mean, you see some things about in the media these days about how bad the situation is in Nicaragua, but obviously Nicaragua was an official enemy. Um, the situation in Honduras is much worse, but you never hear about it because they're an official ally. Right. Um, because the, the government that came in after Celaya, who was the, who was the left-wing strongman of Hillary Clinton's nightmares, um, right. was deposed, um, has been just like a, you know, both an authoritarian and neoliberal nightmare in terms of cutting social services, creating a huge social crisis. The, the, like the, the president isn't being investigated for ties to drug cartels, <laughs> you know, like he's literally in bed with the drug cartels. So, Oh yeah. And, that's and, I mean, just, yeah. yeah. Just as a, just as a one of many examples of what the situation has been there. Like, um, so I was looking at this thing, the uh, Garifuna community, I might be mispronouncing that. My apologies if I am, uh, who are a black tribe. It's not technically indigenous to Honduras, but have settled there and created a community have been under attack and there's a US company that's trying to develop their land into a resort. Uh, there's an article about this, I'll put the link in the show notes. But five leaders of the community leading protests against the development were disappeared, right? And it's unclear mm. if we're talking about police or military or, or you, know, private, you know, private thugs maybe hired by the company. But one way or the other, I, I don't think that in Honduras right now, anybody is gonna be held accountable for this. No. No, and, and, and again, remember like the, the huge caravan that everyone was p- panicking about, the Central American caravan that was like a couple years ago was one of the panics uh, at the time. Um, everyone's forgot about it. Most of those people were coming from, from, from Honduras. You know, yeah, and oh, uh, and, 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 uh, with, and, Hillary, and Hillary Clinton you know, scored some, uh, some points about how tough she was by saying that they should send them back. After she she back. It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. I just, the Clinton rebrand into like woke kind of, you know, not going to throw POC under the bus and all that stuff like is just mind numbing. Like, oh, like it's it really is just mind numbing. Like just listen to her words. Like don't like project, you know, or, or her Twitter feed, you know, saying like what in, what does intersectionality mean to you in three emojis or less or whatever. Um, you know, like just listen to her actual words. That's She's telling you. 
perfect Hillary tweet, but yes. <laughs> yeah. No, that was a real Hillary. No, that was a real one. That, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. In the 2016 awesome. election, that was a real Hillary t- tweet. <laughs> that, that, yeah. That's, that's, that's amazing. Right. And, and again, that is the thing. I, I think what you said earlier uh, is exactly right. Right. I remember uh, that there was this thing that like some libs were pushing in 2016 about how there was like uh, that if you looked at the PolitiFact archives, then the percentage of things that Hillary had said that were lies was actually lower than a lot of other politicians. And, um, and okay, one, the stats nerd point is actually that's statistically meaningless because it's not randomized, but like the more important mm. point, right, is that, that's, is that it's just weird nonsense because you're ignoring the fundamental dishonesty, which can't be fact-checked, right, which is mm-hmm. pretending that you now stand for things that there is isn't. there are decades of evidence from your previous career uh, that you don't, right? You know, that, that, that yeah. like clearly, um, you know, that's, I mean, whatever. I mean, Hillary Clinton is yesterday's news, but I mean, if, if you looked at her entire career, uh, it's it's a very poor fit with that. And I guess Biden, at least, you know, is, isn't it opening himself to as much of a dishonesty charge because he's not pretending very hard uh, to, uh, to have changed. He's not pretending to be woke. Yeah, right, which, which, is, uh, which is something. Uh, but... Um, you know, he's, he's certainly not bragging anymore about how he wrote the crime bill, right, which which he used to. Uh, but we talked about Honduras, right? And of course, the, the, the coup there is, let's see, I want to I want to say this is 2012. Is that right around there? 2009. 2009. Okay, that's right. Sorry. Um, but uh, but there was a very, very recent, in fact, a uh, multiple very recent attempts uh, at right-wing coups in Venezuela. And in fact, I mm-hmm. think there's some, some pretty recent developments there. Yeah, um, there was a, the Venezuelan government arrested a, an American mercenary, essentially, in, in Venezuela, kind of near um, some of the oil refineries with a bunch of weapons <laughs> on him in cash. Just normal behavior, um, and sure. you know, of course, we've all spent. We've all had a weekend where we don't, you know. Yeah, like, I mean, it's fun, you know. Spring break, dude. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it just things get a little crazy. out of hand, and then you yeah, yeah, picked do, up do little drugs. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. And so, up by an uh, oil refinery in Venezuela with a bunch of weapons. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, probably yeah. doesn't mean anything. No, it's, yeah. Well, the Trump administration through their special envoy to Venezuela, a man named Elliot Abrams, um, you know, great little character yeah, we'll in, in late season America. Circle back to him in a minute. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna circle back to him. But Elliot Abrams denied all, you know, that any U.S. involvement in that one. Um, you know, this was just last week. Of course, there was earlier in this year the hilarious Jordan Boudreau uh, coup attempt in Venezuela, which like, you know, went so sideways that uh, they, they captured like three American mercenaries who had their passports on them um, as they were trying to like overthrow the Maduro regime. I mean, you know, this makes like the Bay of Pigs uh, look like uh, a James Bond, you know, or a Jason Bourne operation, you know, like this is, it's just, they don't have, they're, they're not as good anymore at doing it as they used to be. They don't have yeah, the same yeah, that's, that's right. stomachs that's for right. it. Which, which, by, which by the way, uh, something that we, we have in common is that we both used to live in Miami. That's uh, true. And, um, and so I, I would expect you appreciated it when Donald Trump recently claimed to have received the Bay of Pigs Award from the uh, <laughs> Cuban funniest community. thing. 
It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. That, I mean, that and him claiming that November Rain was the greatest music video of all time and like <laughs> making Sarah Huckabee Sanders watch it to like prove his point. And that's not that, a short video. Two, that's a nine minute long video. Um, <laughs> and he's not exactly wrong about it, but the Bay of Pigs Award no, no, no. is one of the I mean, funniest I, I, things. I like Guns N' Roses, but yes, that's the, uh, yeah. but the Bay of Pigs Award is fantastic, Amazing. right? Because of course you recent us policy in venezuela would actually objectively deserve the bay of pigs award yes 100 percent. maybe they maybe they saw that and gave it to him but like i i, I would love like a like an oral history of that tweet like how, or, or like some sort like where did the thought get into his like someone must have told him that he won the bay of pigs award or did he imagine it like because that, that award doesn't exist like obviously right. it's, it's not a real thing that, why would they name an award after the bay of pigs why yes. would they yeah uh, but like w- what what happened like what would happen there but you know i mean having lived in miami just how dominated it is uh, both by obviously the, the the cuban exile community but also now uh, the, the venezuelan quote-unquote exile community even though they're you know right. they're not exactly like exiles like um and uh just just how prevalent they are in in miami society how much power they have like um they they really run the show there um, in many ways, uh, it's kind of a remarkable thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in Miami, the, the Venezuelan diaspora is like 100% on board with like whatever it takes, coup, coup d'etat, Trump, if, you know, like they'll frequently say like something like, I don't like Trump, but like if he does something to like, you know, off Maduro, like I'll be, I'll be, I'll be happy. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that's, the, that's like the moderate uh, thing, you know, to, to say, like as as a as a right wing you know Cuban or Venezuelan uh, exile that you know that's like well of course I don't like Trump right like of course that's right. bad right like I I, mm. I remember uh, back when I was in uh, I was live, still living in Michigan it's before Miami but uh, in my master's program there's a graduate student there who was uh, who was Haitian and everybody was sitting around talking about how much they hated George W Bush right you know it's like. Mm real academic types will right and uh and he was agreeing with everything everybody said but then he said uh, oh yeah but on the other hand right you know Aristide, uh, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And, and at least bush saved my country by which he meant right. that he'd sent the marines to uh kidnap the elected president jean bertrand Aristide and take him out of the country in collaboration with local death squads it's you know, I get so I get so frustrated talking to people because there's this tendency on even with some very left wing people when dealing with some like something like the the situation in Venezuela to feel the need to like constantly qualify caveat that you know like I'm not a big Maduro fan like he's made mistakes and all that stuff and it's like sure I guess whatever you know like the the like let's focus on what we you know have sort of any agency over um and and understand the context that like you know hugo chavez was elected to the presidency the united states participated in a coup not particularly uh you know coy about it in 2002 actually removed him from power for a few days it wasn't until the venezuelan population rose up in defiance of the coup that it all fell apart um then then the united states uh helped the venezuelan kind of elites um do like essentially like a capital strike like a boss strike like a lockout i guess it's called mm-hmm. you know at the which to to basically harm the venezuelan economy um and, and now the 
the did, United did States multiple, is opposed. There was multiple recall attempts. Um, multiple recall attempts. Yeah, the and and then now the United States is is imposing an economic embargo, just like it did on Cuba um, for fifty years. That is absolutely crippling the country. I mean, you can I, this idea that like these embargoes are just like a thing that's not that big of a deal. That's like you don't. No one ever considers the what that really means of the largest economy in the world imposing economic sanctions on a smaller, much poorer country. Like yeah, the, the I mean, effects I mean, that, that it, is. Yeah, for sure, right? And in the context of, of Cuba, right, the, the talking point is always, oh, hey, they can't blame everything on this embargo because they can still trade with the rest of the world, right? You know, just not the United States, as if this were an insignificant thing that the like 500 pound gorilla of countries that is right next door that would be its obvious natural trading partner uh, can't trade with it at all, right? And um, in fact, if you think about how this relates to another frequent right-wing talking point, right, which is that, oh, look at all this medical innovation that happens in the United States. Uh, look at how much, you know, like breakthroughs in medical equipment and stuff happen, you know, happen in the United States, which that was bring up when they're arguing against single payer. Well, put these two together, right? Like if all this medical equipment, for example, is manufactured in the United States and yeah. U.S. companies can't sell to Cuba, what do you think that means about Cuba? Right. Yeah. And, and you know, at the end of the day, for, for Cuba, for all its problems and whatever, you know, if you're a gun to my head and, I, and you're picking like a random country uh, to have to be born in in the Caribbean, you know, like say you're getting chosen, <laughs> like randomly born in Haiti, Ugh. randomly born in puerto rico i mean i guess you can you can say you were forced to stay in puerto rico like you, you can't emigrate yeah, yeah. to the united states um or cuba like you're taking cuba every time like the, the quality of life mm -hmm. in cuba is objectively higher than than in any of those island island nations you know not counting puerto ricans who can come to the united states I mean, the puerto ricans that stay there you know like look at what happened after hurricane maria you know you don't hear the same thing happen when cuba gets hit by a hurricane because it happens all the time um, and they and they have one of the best, uh, well, probably the best, like uh, hurricane um, evacuation uh, and, and control system in the world, right? That uh, yeah. that like it's it's unreal, right? The person from your local, you know, committee for the defense of revolution, you know, uh, will 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 show up and say, okay, here's your here's your spot, right? You know, for for the the shelter up in the mountains, right? You know, and. You go up there. There's, they 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 take your your fridge to a safe place, so your fridge isn't yeah. damaged in the hurricane. You can take your household pets with you, and people pretty much do not die in hurricanes in Cuba. In Cuba, right? even yeah. though it happens all the time, right? And yeah. and you know Haiti, for example, obviously is is absolutely devastated. You know the human consequences when hurricanes come through. And, uh, and of course, the U.S., right, is not nearly as good as Cuba is uh, at, at this, right? Like that famously, um, uh, Fidel Castro uh, offered to uh, send yeah. uh, Cuban doctors and supplies to help uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. And obviously the Bush administration <laughs> said no, right? But like yeah. that's, you know, just the same way that there are Cuban doctors uh, who are in various countries right now helping with the COVID crisis and, you know, relative to being this very small, very poor country, uh, can't get a lot of medical equipment, you know, that's sold in the U.S., et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like their track record handling COVID has been pretty good, right? Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are other countries, you know, for, you know, first world countries, not the U.S., that, you know, you'd rather, uh, that you'd yeah. rather be dealing with the COVID crisis and, you know, than, than, than Cuba, right? But like certainly, um, 
you know, by the standards uh, of, of third world. I mean, they've been killing it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it's just, um, people don't realize, this is something that Daniel Bessner talks about a lot. It's like just people don't realize how powerful the United States is even, even in it's kind of like this, like kind of weird late empire phase where like no one really has a stomach for it anymore or, or, and like no one in the population actually believes anymore. You know, like you don't really see that many true believers anymore. You're seeing kind of like, you know, take the money and run type people, but not, not really like the sort of true believers that, you know, you and I are old enough to remember like the, the late nineties and stuff, the triumphalism, the, the belief that, that like inherent belief in America is just like the superior, like no one really believes that no one makes that case anymore. Like when the politicians say it's like not landing the same way as it used to. Um, but, um, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, the, this, this idea that like the, the United States is, is by, because of that weak is laughable. Like, I mean, the United States military is still like unbelievably powerful, even if it's like bumbling, run by bumbling idiots. And, and, uh, but it's, it's still like, just like, like, again, like you said, the 500 pound gorilla in the room and economically as we're struggling here within the United States, um, and like the majority of people, um, like in the United States are kind of downwardly mobile and struggling. It still is this like overwhelming, power in dictating global economic affairs you know certainly certainly in the western hemisphere so yeah, yeah well so like so speaking that, speaking of which right yeah. so we're going through the western hemisphere right we, we talked sure. a little bit about honduras we talked a little bit about venezuela uh the the obvious case in terms of recent right u.s supported coups because i think a lot of times uh, there's this sort of way that apologists uh for u.s imperialism will kind of try to classify like the greatest hits your Guatemala in 1954, yeah. your Chile in 1973, you know, these things, you know, support for the Contra death squads, in Nicaragua in the eighties and say, okay, well that, that was bad. Sure. Right. Like, like, like it's, 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 it's not that was cold war stuff. We made some mistakes, but like we were fighting the Soviet yeah, we, union. We were just getting a little overzealous in our efforts to fight yeah. the Soviet union in the cold war. So, but it doesn't really represent anything like more significant about than that, right. About the basic relationship between the United States and Latin America, but all the cases we've been talking and talking about just now, have been very recent, right? In fact, actually, before we get to to, to Bolivia, I, I do want to make sure this doesn't get lost, right? Because uh, we we're talking about Reagan earlier, and uh, the the continuity is striking, right? So Elliot Abrams uh, was the same people, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, actually, actually, here, tell 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 us about Elliot Abrams because again, this is this is a figure. It's like it's like somebody who is I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm dating myself here, but it's like a, a beloved character from Cheers showing up on Frasier, right? You know, that like it's, it's, right. it's that kind of thing for the history of U.S. imperialist meddling in Latin America. Yeah, I mean, uh, Elliot Abrams was kind of, I, mean, I don't even know what his official title must have been in the Reagan administration. It was probably something vague, kind of like special envoy to Central America or whatever, but he was... He was basically in charge of, of U.S. policy in Central America in the time of the Dirty Wars, which is very poorly understood here. I mean, the, I mean, if you, when you tell people the amount of people that were killed um, in the Central American Dirty Wars, like their, their jaw just, I mean, it's like talking about like half a million people probably that were killed, if not more. Um, and some of these countries, I mean, these countries are not very big. You know, these are very, very small countries. El Salvador and Nicaragua. Very, very 
countries. And Elliot Abrams was basically the man giving cover to the U.S.-sponsored death squads um, in Guatemala and El Salvador and places like this <clears throat> that received U.S. funding, training, um, all manner of things to basically disappear the left. You know, that, that's basically that was their job. It was to make sure the left disappeared by any means necessary. If you read Vincent Bevins' great book, The Jakarta Method, I mean, this was, you know, this was the po- policy kind of that was invented in, 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 in Indonesia in 1965 um, and taken throughout the world, but especially in Latin America, is that if you disappear the people um, rather than kill them publicly, you kind of have the effect of, not to use like an overused term, but like gaslighting the population right. um, because you, you, they don't know what happened. Like they, they just never really know what happened to them. You always kind of hold out hope. Um, and Elliot Abrams was like the butcher of Central America. Like, I mean, he, you know, he was the, he was the guy in charge of like taking some dopey New York Times reporter, um, you know, and telling him like, nope, yeah, these guys are freedom fighters and uh, da, 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 da. And the New York Times reporter's like, well, <laughs> checks out, you know, like, and then, uh, <laughs> you know, as, as, the, <laughs> as the quote unquote liberal media is wont to do, you know, whenever right. like some natsec ghoul just tells them like, nope, actually what we're doing is actually good. You know, that, that stuff that you're hearing, all communist propaganda. <laughs> okay, well, um, and yeah, and now he's back. He's back in black, baby. Uh, yeah, like you said, the continuity. This is not ancient history. This is U.S. policy that transcends administrations, uh, transcends partisan yeah, so, lines. So, so, so tell us a little bit about this, right? What's, what's his role been in the last year? So he's the special envoy to Venezuela. Um, and I mean, it, basically what it's been is to coordinate efforts with the Venezuelan opposition, um, which is this kind of comically uh, inept, uh, fractured and, um, you know, but also like kind of very, very extreme and and potentially violent faction, yeah. very well funded by like the Venezuelan elite, both in... By, by, in- by, by, by the way, I, I do have to say, right, I, I love, uh, I think one of the revelations in Steve Bannon's book is that uh, Donald Trump had referred to Juan Guaido, right? The the guy who uh, oh, attempted yes. to install as president of Venezuela as the Pete Buttigieg. The Beto O'Rourke. Oh, sorry. Actually, that's even better. Yes, the Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, it is better. It, it's more accurate. You know, like he is, like Pete Buttigieg is like a psychopath who like you can imagine being, you know, the next, the next like big wig. Maybe he's not going to become president, but he'll be like, some major power player in democratic party politics. Right, 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 he is a true psychopath that is going to like get there some way, shape or form, you know, like he's going to replace near a in a cap or something, you know, and then be the chief of staff uh, for Kamala Harris, whatever. Um, ben O'Rourke is a, is a loser, you know, like he's just like a, a dopey kind of Gen X dumbass. Yeah, you know, yeah, people, boom, people, boom. yeah. People like, like he had a lot of goodwill, right. For progressives when he was running against uh, Ted Cruz and then he was clearly going through some kind of identity crisis because now he wasn't running for anything <laughs> and, right. and then he felt lost and disoriented. So he tried to run for president and uh, he did a lot of like standing on standing on tables and tree stumps and stuff. But like yeah. uh, it, it got sadder and sadder uh, as it went on, yeah. which is not a bad analogy. <laughs> in fact, for, uh, no. for, for Juan Guaido spending like actually – you know, whatever you think, as you're saying, right, about, about you know, Maduro and, and, and anything that, you know, that that government in Venezuela might have done wrong or mistakes they might have made or, you know, any of that stuff, right? There was a hilarious disconnect because it took the, there was a long time when Juan Guaido was doing things like going around to military bases saying, I'm the real president, follow me. 
everybody just kind of laughed at him and ignored him. And he wasn't even being arrested, you know, by, by this, this, this government, which was honestly a propaganda masterstroke by the Maduro government. Cause it's like, Hey, you know what, you know, what's going to like, like the disconnect is going to be so amazing here. Right. Cause they're talking about how we're stolen and like, we're just going to let this idiot like walk around, like go around and like turn right. military like, bases. <laughs> the fact that this guy's not been executed yet. Like what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you, know, you know, Juan Guaido uh, goes around with a full-time paid astrologer. Awesome. Awesome. Like he has a guy on staff and that's his job to be his, as an astrologer or astrologist. I don't know. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Somehow he's running around this like authoritarian government try, uh, country trying to overthrow the government, and yeah, he's still not in jail or or executed. But um, yeah, somebody, but yeah, I mean, so, the, somebody in chat says there are no attempts to get mercenaries to support Beto, but if there were, he would find a way to fuck it up. I mean, that's the point. Right, totally. But it's interesting, you know, because uh, and this is something that Mike 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 Brooks and I used to talk uh, a lot about, but because you know, there's the the. Well, there's a lot of talk about like, you know, the authoritarianism of people like Maduro or Chavez or Castro, you know, a figure like Chavez, you know, who's on the left, but came through the military, you know, mm-hmm. um, has been able uh, in many ways, the, the, the Venezuelan regime has been able to withstand sort of uh, the, the basically the attacks from the United States and its own kind of internal um, elites mostly because of their, their support of the support from the armed forces, mostly because they come from the armed forces. Like, this is not something we would want to happen, but like, it's just a reality that the Venezuelan military still supports Maduro. And that is why he will be in power. Um, and right. Castro, um, you know, fought, like was a military, you know, like was a, in a way, he didn't come from like an official, like regular army the way Chavez did, but he was a military guy, like, you know, commander in the field um and that in, that allowed him to enjoy kind of the, the the support of the armed forces whereas someone like lula in brazil or evo morales in bolivia do not come from the military so they're always going to be vulnerable to the right-wing authoritarian coup yeah um, to, right right exactly so 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 let's talk about bolivia because uh this was uh was pretty recent right it happened at the beginning of the year uh and when it happened, right, what you were saying earlier about Elliot Abrams talking to NatSec reporters from the New York Times is exactly what played out with the, the Bolivia situation, that uh, the Organization of American States said uh, this, this election, you know, where, where Morales won uh, wasn't a legitimate election, which, by the way, uh, they didn't even claim at the time to have any particular direct evidence for uh, it yeah. was just this kind of like Nate Silvery, like let's extrapolate backwards from the numbers. And, you know, like, it's like, oh, this seems unlikely, right? That it would play out this way. Uh, so, so they said it was no legitimate election. Uh, and then the military got involved uh, and, and Morales was deposed. And there was, there was like a month there where they completely like centrist, liberal, like reasonable person view was, well, we really shouldn't even talk about this as a coup because, you know, Morales, right. you know, well, he was a strong man, right? You know, he, he had, right. the, you know, he had authority. He was a very strong man. <laughs> he had the, the big dick energy, very strong man. No, like I'll never forget this. This tweet is like implanted in my brain. I just looked it up because I had to like double check. And the Clara Jeffrey, the editor of Mother Jones magazine in, at, at this time, um, tweeted out, she quote tweeted the New York Times uh, story about this. And she goes, 
dicey times in Bolivia. Morales had taken several end runs around a democratic process, but let's hope it's a democratic process that succeeds him. And that is just like liberal brain in America. You know, like what I was talking about, like, well, I don't know, like maybe it'll, maybe something better will happen. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's just like. No, that, that, so... that, that is amazing. That's like, they have a, uh, that's like, well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit alarmed that Jack the Ripper is still at large, but let's hope that he stops killing people. Right. Yeah. Maybe he will. Maybe he will. Maybe we can reason with him, you know, like, and it's, 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 it's hilarious. Cause in, you know, what, what Morales was accused of was not even of stealing the election. It, he was accused of not winning the election by a big enough margin to avoid a runoff. You know, like no one disputes that he got more votes than the other guy. Um, like that is, was never in dispute. The question is whether did he, did he win by a, a margin of 10%, which would prevent a runoff from happening that even that small kind of thing was proven to be bullshit. Um, you know, the OAS, uh, which is, you know, obviously like no friend to the left. Um, like even the New York times said that the OAS, the OAS's report was, was bullshit. Um, and since, yeah, whoops, big time whoopsie. Um, and um, since then the, the Janine Añez was this like far right, sort of Christian fundamentalist who, who took power since then and has been promising elections, but keeps on kind of delaying them because he, despite the fact that Evo Morales is, uh, you know, outside of the country, uh, basically living in exile, um, his party, the, the mass party, um, is still leading in all the polls, <laughs> you know, so if they had the election, um, it looks likely that the that the mass candidate would win so therefore they keep on uh delaying the elections and the latest thing is that now she's dropping out of the elections she's pulling to you know to cite uh, an american context she's pulling basically a pete Buttigieg, uh because you know like i said in the, in the, in the bolivian system um you you need to win by uh 40 like you need to get at least 40 percent of the vote uh, and win by 10 percent at least to avoid a runoff it looks like the mass candidate, the, the Evo Morales candidate, will get that um, in the first round because the sort of right wing opposition is fractured. So what they're trying to do is like drop, she's going to drop out. They're all going to throw their support behind the other guy. And hopefully that unites the, the right for them so that they can take the election at least to a runoff, in which case then all the right wing forces will consolidate and, and, and stop the mass party. But that's basically what's going on in Bolivia. You know, dicey times indeed for Clara Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> right, uh, and and the excuse has been that they can't have the election because of uh, of the coronavirus, right? You know yeah. that that's that's like, um, which really, I mean, is is such a golden thing for for anybody who's in that space, right? I mean, that was like right after COVID started. You know, Viktor Orban's uh, party in Hungary uh, did this thing about how well. Uh, because this is an emergency, uh, because of the uh, because of the pandemic, now you know, like you know, he's he's the dictator, and he can just do things by decree, and you know, because like this is just what you have to do, you know, for for public health, and you know, even Trump kind of took a, a stab at it, right? I mean, it was it was half-hearted in the way that that Trump tends to be, right? You know, he he doesn't follow through. Uh, it's really no. my biggest objection to Trump: the lack of follow-through. But uh, the no uh, follow-through. <laughs> But uh, but he he tweeted out that little trial balloon. It's like oh COVID, yeah, maybe we should delay the election, you know. Like, um, but uh, but in Bolivia, that's that's actually uh, happened uh, multiple times, right? Because they just care yeah. so damn much about the COVID yeah, response, about protecting, yeah, 
even though yeah. uh, the actual COVID response has been catastrophic. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course. You know, like the, the yeah. No, like you said, um, it's just liberals. Like I don't, and I, I can never know if they're like dumb or dishonest or a combination of both, but like, you know, they're, they're taking everything at face value and like not, not understanding or not remembering what happened like two seconds ago. Like this is not ancient history. You don't need to like go into, you know, some dusty old library in Alexandria or something to find the ancient texts. Like they're, <laughs> they happen in our lifetime. The tweets are, the tweets are still there. You know, the Clara Jeffrey tweets are still there to own. Um, so, yeah, I, I never know. Like they just take out all these things at face value. Well, they can't have the election because it's COVID. You know that makes sense. You know, like, <laughs> right, right, right. And it, it's, yeah. it's it's no, 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 no. You don't understand. It's an independent commission that said we can't do this. And I'm yeah, sure it's that the like, organization of American states said that the election was was yeah. fraudulent. You know, and these are all like a real organization. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. These are all obviously apolitical bodies, and uh, and and the. Uh, you know, this commission in, in Bolivia, there obviously wouldn't be any sort of improper pressure on it that's like happening like literally after a military coup and like right. mass like reprisals, you know, against the left, you know, that happened in the aftermath of that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a very like, I think that a lot of times uh, American liberals, uh, they have this belief. Well, look, I mean, like the starting thing is that they think they've, that they think that they will make themselves look reasonable if they have some sort of like left-wing bogeyman, you know, that they, they can, they can get punched for denouncing. And um, now, which is obviously like weirdly delusional. I mean, I think it's kind of the same thing. Like, I think it's the same like brain disease as leftists who convince themselves that like just by saying really radical things, we're doing something called moving the Overton window. And then like that'll like trick people into delivering. Sean McElwee, we're going to abolish ice. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, which, which really he was just saying is nine dimensional chess to like get some sort of like halfway reform to happen, which is what he now says. And obviously that's been a smashing success uh, yeah. as you can see, because uh, things have gotten like, you know, Trump's immigration policy has really gotten a lot more reasonable in the last couple of years. Uh, but, uh, but well, the, and, like, and Joe Biden is running yeah. on, you know, on immigration. No. Like, no, I mean, he actually like said during the primaries, uh, there was there was a moment when when a voter, uh, I believe in it. Well, I don't know. But you know, but somebody asked him, like, you know, like one of these like meet and greet things, like go talk to voters back when you could do this that uh, about, you know, what he would do, you know, to to help undocumented uh, immigrants. And uh, he actually told him, look, you know, here, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you what you want to hear, basically. And the line he actually said, right, you can go vote for somebody else. Yeah which is yeah. awesome. Uh, but like, uh, but yeah, so, so because, because a lot of liberals believe that they'll get reasonableness points if they denounce some, you know, some sort of. From the reasonableness voting. referee. <laughs> yeah, the, the unreasonableness so referee, which I mean, yeah. I mean, that's actually, I mean, that's the entire, I mean, like the Obama administration was like eight years of trying to get the attention of the unreasonableness referee. It's like, okay, well, if we nominate Merrick Garland, who the Republicans have praised in the past, and they still don't like, you know, let it come to a vote, then like the unreasonableness guarantee, like the unreasonableness referee is going to have to give them that yellow card now. Right. I mean, like, like he just can't say he didn't see that. And so because they have this belief and, 
there's, I think, a lot of the reactions to stuff in Latin America often reflects that because that's like a very easy way to do it, right? You know, that that's like... Yeah. Low uh, stakes. Yeah, it's, it's very low stakes, you know, for American politics. You know, you're not going to get any... Um, you know, there's there's no way that uh, that you're going to be you know punished by the voters for saying something bad about Maduro or Morales or you know Zelaya you know from uh, Honduras or any of these people, right? Uh, so so there's there's no there's no real downside from their perspective, and they believe it's delusional, right? But they believe that there's going to be this upside that they're that yeah. you know that they're going to win points. Uh, with uh, with the reasonableness referee, which is why actually it was so shocking uh, both times actually he ran for president, right? That uh, that that Bernie Sanders uh, pushed back against that, right? That that he actually did do things like um, like talk about you know how bad the um, the coup to install Pinochet was uh, when Hillary Clinton said that Henry Kissinger was her friend. Uh, there were there were there was a debate in Miami uh, where he was yeah, asked. To, I was there. Uh, to, yeah, he was asked to. Uh, he was confronted with some like devastating old clips of him saying true things about Cuba and Nicaragua. Uh, that was the Nicaragua, Nicaragua yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. That's yes. Yeah. Uh, they and uh, and he he didn't you know he didn't walk it back, which is one of the many reasons. I mean, obviously, it's the least of it as far as everything that's like all the consequential reasons why, uh, why the way that the primary turned out, you know, is a tragedy, but, uh, but, yeah. but one of the things that I was really hoping for if, if Bernie was nominated uh, after, after saying all those things, right. You know, after, after not, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it, well, right. The Miami debate, the, uh, the Sandinistas came up and he didn't walk it back uh, yeah. after the Nevada caucus, right. There was the thing about, uh, the true things that he'd said about the Cuban healthcare and literacy efforts and he didn't walk it back. And so, which is the same things Obama said, which was also so infuriating. (laughs) Yeah, he he did in Cuba, no less. Yeah. 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 Right. But, but that's different. Um, Yeah. It's different. Yeah. So, and so if after saying all of that, uh, he had been, uh, he had been nominated anyway, like what, one of the things I was really hoping for was that this would just kind of, put to bed the idea that you can't win an election without uh, pandering to uh, the, uh, you know, the, the exile communities in South Florida. Which Obama did it. Yeah. You know, Obama won Florida twice and he even won a majority of voters in Dade County and some polls, I mean, it's hard to like to the extent that you can poll these things, but some polls had him at like a narrow victory amongst Cuban Americans in Miami. Um, and so, uh, Obama did it. It's just, I'm, you know, it's just, I don't know how he did it. I mean, I don't know why he didn't get, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he wasn't, points. he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't saying things like Bernie was about this, but it is true that, they, that a lot of those, uh, a lot of those people hated him. You know, like I remember, yeah. um, I remember actually when I was voting in 2008, uh, it was one of those things I voted early to, to try to avoid the lines and not only did that not work, uh, uh, but, you know, I ended up like me and my friends like stood in line all day, you know, waiting to early vote. And it was pretty striking, right? You could tell who's going to win the election because um, the Democrats like pulled out all the stops, right? The Obama campaign had volunteers there to pass out bottled water to people waiting in line. And there were actually some kind of like B-list actors who were there to like encourage people to stay in line. 
uh, one of the uh, one of the actresses from Sex and the City was there. You know, I took a picture of her with one of my friends I was voting with. Oh yeah, and and the the, the McCain campaign was represented by like five guys with handmade signs saying things like Cuba got change in 1959. Uh, and so there was this like weird incompetent attempt at red baiting that didn't go anywhere. Well, this is the new, this is the new Lincoln project tactic. They have some like Cuban American guy. I think he's Cuban American. I don't want to like speak for, but they have this like uh, Hispanic guy on the Lincoln project and his new, his new thing is to compare Trump to Castro. He's like, no, actually Trump is like Castro. You know, and they have a picture of both of them like going like that and it's like side by side. And like, that's the, that's how they're owning Trump is by comparing him to Castro. Is it anyone Good in Miami? Yeah. Like, is if anyone in Miami is going to buy that? You know, like no one's going to buy that. They love him. They love him. I've been there. They love him. He's their guy, you know? <laughs> so yeah, that one's not going to work. You gotta, you gotta come at it from a different angle if you want, if you want to like Joe Biden. Uh, yeah. yeah, no question. No question. All right, Nando. Um, All right, thank you so much for coming out. Oh, before you leave, uh, Jeremy asks in the Q and A, uh, what guitars you have on your wall? I got a. Well, so the the one at the top is this this one right here. That's a 1989 Fender Telecaster Thinline, made in Japan, which I'm very proud of. It's actually these days my favorite one. Sounds amazing. The one in the middle is a Fender Stratocaster. That was my first guitar. That's probably a 2000, maybe 1999. Um, that one is a Gretsch, uh, Chet Atkins model. Um, and I have a uh, Martin over here. That is my like, kind of acoustic go-to. Um, I also have an Epiphone hidden somewhere, uh, another Epiphone hollow body. So yeah, I like guitars, man. It's, uh, I like them. I don't know. Yeah. Do you guys play guitar? Chris, can you I play want, guitar? You play guitar. Chris has got a couple yeah, behind I play guitar. him, I believe. What do you got back there? What are you packing I mean, back there? I don't have my my uh, my main guitar is actually outside of my balcony right now because I was just playing it. But it's a mm. it's an Epiphone a jumbo um, acoustic. Yeah, it's the same model as a uh, um, uh, uh, Jesus Christ. I can't remember his name right now. Anyways, yeah, I got a couple uh, back the, here. The, I got the, a banjo. The big, one, the big boys. I, yeah, yeah, like a huge ass guy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jamie Johnson is who I was thinking about. He plays the mm. exact same guitar. But yeah, I play banjo too. But uh, these guys are just like my mess around guitars. I have like this old ass boy. that I've, This was my first guitar, just like an old $100 Ibanez that I still Hell yeah. you know, kept around, get repaired every couple of years. You know, you got to show it some love. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. You can uh, never get rid of your first love. All right. <laughs> So, uh, so I'm talking to uh, Nando Vila, who, um, yeah, yeah, Jack and Ben, you know, other 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 media stuff, right? The 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 important thing, right? The thing the thing everybody needs to know is he hosts the uh, co-hosts the Entourage Rewatch podcast. Let's pot it out. Um, Daniel Bessner was just on there uh, to uh, to talk about the uh, the episode where they uh, meet the rapper Saigon. Uh, yeah. what's, uh, what's, what's coming up next? We got a uh, Vince Mancini, uh, is, is the next guest that uh, we recorded it on Friday. I'm, I'll edit it, you know, tomorrow maybe and, and release it either Monday or Tuesday. Um, and then we got probably the next guest will be T from Champagne Sharks nice. for the season finale of season two where Brilliant. Ari leaves the agency. <gasps> yeah. 
Yeah, yep. good stuff. Uh, speaking of TV rewatching, uh, I should tell people Nando has already agreed to come back sometime in October or November to talk about The Sopranos. We've also got Mike Racine, uh, who's going to come back coming on for that. Um, maybe one other person. We're still figuring that out. So uh, looking forward to that. Looking forward to talk, uh, talking to you then. Thank you so much, brother. All right, guys. Take it easy. See you around. Thanks. Right. Joined now uh, by a friend, our comrade, uh, David Griscom, um, who is here, of course, for another segment of Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Uh, I am actually, we're, uh, my wife and I are in the process of moving and, uh, and we're running dangerously low on whiskey right now, but this is the, uh, this is, this is the rule, right? When Griskin nice. comes on, yeah. you need to switch, switch to whiskey. So I've got like a little bit of Maker's Mark left. So I will drink that. Not bad. I just finished off this bottle of uh, Four Roses, yes. which is some, some good stuff with my, uh, my whiskey this week. Yeah, man, you're ready for this. Uh, this one, I've been, I've been feeling really uh, deeply about this, uh, this subject, Blaze Foley, lately. I was listening to some of his songs before I came on, starting to get hit with his legend. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm excited, right? So, so Blaze Foley is somebody that, I mean, obviously, uh, the last few weeks, you know, we've been talking about the sort of, um, you know, very well-known titans, you know, of, of country music, you know, people, uh, people like Merle Haggard and Johnny Cash. But, uh, right now we're going to talk about Blaze Foley, who's somebody you introduced me to. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know where to start with Blaze, but I'll guess I'll just start here for people who aren't familiar with him. There's a reason you're not familiar with him. Is one, he never really had much commercial success at all during his life. Um, and two, he died tragically, um, not necessarily young, but around 39. Um, but we'll get he to that story to in a little. Sorry? Yeah. Seems pretty young to me. I just turned 40. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, but he was making music for a long time um, and just... I mean, he was one of those people, he was really close to Towns Van Zandt, and that's, I think, why a lot of people know about him, um, because he was such an important part of so many people's lives in the country music scene, especially the Austin music scene, um, that people really continued his legacy. And now, when it comes to listening to uh, Blaze Foley, there's only a few tapes that actually still exist and survive today, um, which obviously adds so much to the legend and the mystique. There's some really great YouTube concerts that you can find uh, online, but you know, they're all really for the most part, low quality, grainy shots, bad audio. Um, so you really have to, you know, there's a few, uh, albums out there that have like pretty decent audio, but you just sort of have to listen through, you know, a lot of stuff that usually annoys people. Um, so if you're kind of like audiophile and you can't handle like any ambient noise, you might not be able to listen to plays fully. Um, damn. So, yeah, I mean, I guess just starting, like, you know, his name wasn't Blaze Foley, as anyone who has a beautiful name like that. It was a stage name. Um, he was born Michael Fuller, and his name, uh, Blaze Foley, came out of, he was trying to play off of uh, Red Foley, who was a pretty popular, like, television, you know, movie star and country music artist, the kind of guy you'd see on TV back in, like, the 50s and 60s. And then slowly his name just went from Blue Foley, which was his stage name, uh, and, until it became uh, Blaze Foley. Famously, like he wrote the song "If I Needed You," which we talked about last week, uh, that Merle Haggard made very, very popular. Um, and I told y'all the story last week about 
how Merle Haggard said that was one of the greatest country songs he'd ever listened to in his life. And, uh, you know, Blaze Foley kept that in his boot uh, and would pull it out at parties all the time to show people. But here's the thing about Blaze. Not only was he an incredible artist, but he was also, he really lived the life of an artist. When he first moved to Austin, he just, he was camping outside of the city. Uh, where a lot of other kind of like homeless people or people who weren't able to afford any housing also were living. So he lived in these communities and then would go from couch to couch, house to house. There was a joke about him that, you know, everything that he owned was, was uh, fixed with duct tape. He constantly was having to pawn his guitar and he would borrow people like Towns Van Zandt's guitar before he would play a show or a concert or anything like that. He never was really able to play at any of the big uh, clubs in Austin because he'd get kicked out. Uh, as Towns Van Zandt said, like there were two different signs of him that I knew well. One was a kind of gruff, angry guy who would drink too much. And the other one was this really adorable, sweet uh, teddy bear. Um, but, you know, before we get into that kind of stuff, it's worth you yeah. know, mentioning some of his really phenomenal uh, songs. So there's mm-hmm. Clay Pigeons, which is just a beautiful song. People might know that uh, because John Prine made that really popular and famous as well. Uh, always already mentioned uh, if I could only fly, but here's just some lyrics from some of his more political songs. Cause he got like pretty radical and interesting, especially towards the end of his life. Um, so there's a song that's a personal favorite of mine called oval room. And you can listen to that now. And it's almost an anti-Trump song, uh, you know, that was written about 30, 40 years, 30 years ago. Um, and it's about Ronald Reagan. Um, and it says, uh, you know, at the factory, never been so slow. Got a big fourth down, 99 to go. Down on the farm, nothing growing there. But the debts they owe and their gray hair. In the desert sand and the juggle deep. He thinks everything is his to keep. He's a real cowboy with his makeup on. He talks to kings and queens on the telephone. He's the president, but I don't care. Whoa. <laughs> um, you know, just like, uh, you know, fun songs like that. The video that I posted on Twitter, the first thing he says is like, you can ask me anything, just don't ask me to vote. Um, <laughs> he has another song called Election Day where he's basically he's pleading with a policeman, don't take my stuff. It costs too, it costs me too much money and it probably ain't enough uh, to get me through Election Day. <laughs> um, you know, so he has some pretty radical, um, you know, politics for sure. And when his first major album was going to come out, um, he had intended for 20% of the proceeds from it to go and fund one of the major uh, homeless shelters in Austin. Um, unfortunately, he wasn't able to, to make that because in uh, 1989, uh, he was staying at a house with a friend and he came home after you know, having a few drinks and he came, he came back to the house and he confronted the brother of the person who he was staying with, who he had found out was stealing his own father's welfare checks and blaze fully confronted him. And then the man uh, shot him in the liver uh, twice. And he died shortly after that. And the man who shot him, his own father tried to testify against him in the murder trial. Um, but basically the defense lawyers were made the argument that because this guy was such a drunk, um, he would not be credible witness. So there was no, um, you know, the person was not convicted, but, in a kind of fitting and loving way, Blaze Foley's uh, friends, Towns Van Zandt and all these people, they pulled together, uh, you know, he had his casket and instead of using nails to, to finish it up, every person at the funeral put a little piece of duct tape uh, to, to say goodbye to their friend who had their entire life duct taped together. And the last thing I'll mention 
as the legend goes, uh, you know, he was really close with Towns Van Zandt. And Towns Van Zandt and, and uh, Blaze Foley are two people who love to tell stories. So don't just take it with a grain of salt. you got to take it with a shaker. Um, but Towns Van Zandt does say that that was not the last time at that funeral that he saw Blaze Foley. Uh, as we said earlier, uh, Blaze was always, you know, pawning off his guitars. And Towns and his friends were trying to get his last guitar from the pawn shop. And they realized that the uh, ticket to the pawn shop was buried in the suit. And Towns Van Zandt allegedly, according to him, went with his friends and dug up Blaze's body about two weeks after that. And uh, (laughs) 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 so that's the, that's the, um, (laughs) I mean, there's so many things to say, but like, Oh, I mean like, you know, he had such bad luck. Like he recorded an album, I think in 1985, the masters he had in his truck, a bunch of robbers came in his truck, stole everything, and they stole his, uh, the masters, uh, you know, the, the cassette tapes that he had, um, and in his own words, because uh, they were so shiny, they thought they must be worth something. And then the, uh, the recording company that he was working with was also involved in some illicit activities on the side. Uh, so an FBI raid came in and took everything, and they still have in their possession the original place fully out. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't know, just like a really fascinating guy, really lived his kind of, music. kind of want to imagine like somebody, uh, you know, a uh, an agent, you know, like listening, like well, they're, they're there late at night, you know, it's like, ah, oh, let's put this on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this unreleased album. Um, you know, he, he just really was such a, a wonderful teddy bear and obviously dealt with a lot of hardship, um, but it was a really beautiful person. I have one of his records, which I played for you, um, called mm-hmm. The Dog Ears, which is an amazing album. It actually just came out in 2016. Um, but they were uh, tapes that his uh, partner and, uh, uh, you know, girlfriend at the time basically demanded that he record. And they recorded them in his house. And, you know, they're very raw, very beautiful, very much like sitting down on a, somebody's front porch. Um, but in some of the songs, you can hear his newborn baby crying in the background. I mean, I just really that. live yeah. kind of life. A lot of people who do country music, they try to tell stories about themselves, about how country or Southern they are, where Blaze Foley never had to tell any stories regarding that. I mean, he just, he was, you know, such a country music artist, but he really was an artist who suffered for his, his, his songwriting. And that was his full-time, you know, passion, even though it never really brought him any money. I love the line. He has a great song called uh, Big Cheeseburgers and Good French Fries. Uh, which for the most part is about what you think it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he has a line and he says, uh, I think I'm crazy, but that depends. I don't seem that crazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you sent me a couple of, of songs. I, uh, I listened to, I listened to that one last night. It's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's a, I mean, he's a beautiful, beautiful man. And obviously there's a reason everyone, you know, there's a reason he's such a legend. Uh, Ethan Hawke has made a, a movie about him called blaze which i think is on mm-hmm. netflix now i haven't seen it i was going to watch it but i figured i wouldn't let that sort of spoil my uh, my perspective on him he's somebody who is like you know is amazing for me uh because you know he was shot in 1989 in bolden um which is in austin bolden creek and uh you know just three years later little baby david was being brought home from the hospital about a two-minute walk from where he was shot so He's always sort of been a big figure in my imagination because of that. And uh, yeah, um, you know, another thing just to mention, Lucinda Williams, 
uh, wrote the song Drunken Angel. That's about Blaze Foley. Um, another person we have to do is think about soon is Towns Van Zandt, who I'm sure people know about. Mm-hmm. But when Van Zandt first got out of rehab, he was playing a show and, you know, he got up and he just started forgetting the words of his songs. And Blaze was in the audience and just stood up, grabbed his friend by the arm and just like sang in the microphone the lyrics until, <laughs> until you know, Towns could catch his breath and figure out where he was. And then he just went back and sat back in the front row. I don't know. I mean... You know, a beautiful story, but just I think is really the kind of guy that he was yeah. too. Um, a, a really oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> what uh, so so somebody was looking to uh, to get into um, Blaze's Foley's music. You know, like, well, what's what's a good place to start? What should they listen to? You know, I think um, I think I love Overroom. Um, I love the Dog Years. The Dog Years are pretty early music. I think depending on how you listen to your music. Um, mm watching those tapes on YouTube are worthwhile. Um, especially when I sent to you, I mean, he's playing the song where he has like a little flower. Um, actually I should mention that. Like he has a little flower, like in his cowboy hat that says extraterrestrial on the hat band all the way around. Um, and if you look really closely, he has duct tape holding the cuffs of his, uh, his suit together. Um, that's definitely, I think one of the better places to start with. Um, Spotify has uh, dog ears, it also has a really great album. Um, make sure I get the name right here. Um, you know, it has a bunch of uh, his stuff that came out recently because there's been such a, a new like uh, revival in Blaze, in interest in Blaze Foley. Um, so the album is Sitting by the Road, uh, which actually has most of these great songs like Big Cheeseburgers, Slow Boat to China, A Cold Cold World, um, Fat Boy, which is another great song. Um, that's definitely a great place to start. But honestly the thing is with Blaze, anywhere you jump into, you're going to be rewarded for it because he was an ace picker and a great songwriter. Nice. Well, thank you so much, David. This is fantastic as always. Um, do you, uh, do you know yet who you want to do next week? I'm going to think about it. I, I'm leaning towards towns, but uh, you know, let's revisit that soon. All right. Yeah. Sounds good, man. Well, right. uh, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Love finishing out episodes this way. Um, so talk to you very soon. Sounds good. Can't wait. All right. Thanks, brother. Bye. All right. Um, was David Griscom from Michael Brooks Show uh, doing another segment of Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Before that, talked to David Feldman, uh, who is the host of the David Feldman Show, is also the co-host of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour with somebody who I tremendously admire, uh, even if, uh, if I don't always agree with his electoral strategy, uh, Ralph Nader. Uh, and uh, Emma Vigland from the Young Turks and Nando Vila from projects ranging from the uh, weekend show he does with Anna Kasparian on Jacobin to Let's Pot It Out, uh, the Entourage Weekend uh, Uh, Entourage Rewatch uh, podcast that he started at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, Before I sign off, I just want to take a couple of questions from Q&A. So uh, Shona had uh, brought up uh, the history of socialism in Ireland and Scotland. Um, And I'm less familiar with the Scottish part of that equation, uh, but uh, but certainly uh, socialism has been a huge part of um, the, you know, the history of Irish republicanism 
that you know we figures like uh, James Conley, uh, who's one of my favorite Marxist writers, uh, and um, you know I, th- I think really insightful, really personally heroic person, and somebody who uh, had a lot of good stuff to say about why uh, merely achieving national liberation without uh, founding a socialist republic uh, in which uh, the, the poor and the downtrodden of the country uh, could, um, could be uh, not only have their material needs met, but be empowered uh, and, and truly free in a different way would eliminate most of the point. If you've ever watched the movie, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, well, if you haven't, I would recommend it. But if you have, you uh, might remember a scene in there uh, where uh, there is um, two of the characters are sitting in a British uh, jail cell, uh, you know, well, in Ireland, but, you know, but a, a, a jail cell, you know, they've been captured by British forces uh, and they sort of do a unison quote of uh, James Connolly talking about that. It's fantastic. I love that movie. Um, also, uh, there is uh, a question. Uh, yes, actually, that, that is true. James Connolly was, uh, was born in Edinburgh, I believe, but he uh, mostly lived in Ireland, and, you know, and he was one of the leaders of the uprising in 1916, and he was executed uh, when, uh, when the British uh, suppressed that uprising. In fact, I believe he was famously taken uh, to the firing squad because he was sick, they, they just carted his bed out there to, uh, to shoot him, uh, which, uh, you know, which, which is, you know, an amazing story, an amazing uh, symbol of the brutality of, uh, of the British in Ireland. Uh, Jeremy asks, what explains the aspect in liberalism that requires the self-flattery and obsession with reasonableness? Uh, and I don't know that this is, uh, this is the entire story there, uh, but, uh, but I, I think that a big part of it is that a lot of people who have a basically liberal worldview, they have some good impulses, right? You know, that they, they do correctly see at least some of the things that are wrong with the world, even if their solutions are tepid and insufficient. Uh, and, and they want to, they want to improve them, right? You know, they, they, they have this basic instinct of liking some sort of social progress, even if they want it to be slow. Uh, but the problem is that they don't have a worldview, uh, that gives them any conception of class struggle. This goes back to what I was talking about earlier with people thinking that they can do something by quote unquote, moving the Overton window. I have an article about this coming out in Jacobin. Uh, that no, you can't, right? You know, the analogy when people talk about the Overton window is to the idea of like a negotiation session, right? It's like, oh, well, you want, you want to end up at eight, you should demand 11, right? The problem is you can only demand 11 and have that mean something to the bosses because you have behind you uh, an organization of workers who are prepared to walk out of, off the job if you don't get what you want at the bargaining table. So there's a threat attached to it that actually impacts uh, the capitalist bottom line. And when you're just talking about rhetorical exercise, what you advocate, nothing similar uh, is, uh, is true. 
so there's no, you know, you can scare the bosses into giving you eight by advocating 11. You can't scare anybody into agreeing with you, which is why the whole concept of moving the Overton window is fundamentally confused. Doesn't mean we shouldn't advocate radical things, but we should do that as part of a strategy for building an organized working class movement that can actually achieve those things. And that is the distinction that I make there. So to answer Jeremy's question, I think the reason that liberals end up being obsessed with reasonableness or one of them, uh, it reflects the same confusion as the Overton window thing that they think, you know, because they don't have an idea that what happens in the society is dictated by who has power, right? A perspective that's about class struggle that, you know, you have to organize to take the things that you want. Uh, so they think that you can, if you, show how reasonable you are, that will just persuade people whose ideology or whose economic interests don't all go along with what you want into doing what you want. And of course, that never works. Uh, Dave would like to see the t-shirt. So this is a t-shirt that I got uh, back in uh, the fall of 2015. Um, I... Uh, my wife was still in graduate school. I finished my PhD. Uh, we'd just gotten back from living in South Korea for a couple of years. Neither of us had an academic job lined up, so I ended up going back to Michigan, substitute teaching for a semester before I got the gig uh, teaching uh, as part-time lecturer at Rutgers uh, back then. So in any case, all that's just background. Uh, it was turned out the silver lining of that pretty grim situation was that uh, – I uh, got to be in East Lansing, which is where I'm from, uh, during an amazing season right up until the end of Michigan State football uh, that included a couple of, uh, of, of games where MSU won at the last minute, like the last second, when they had no right to win, that, that it, was, it was a total surprise. They just kind of snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Uh, and so uh, this is a T-shirt that I bought specifically to go to a sports bar to watch that game. Uh, it says uh, Beat Michigan. Uh, this is before the MSU University of Michigan game that happened in 2015, which was an amazing, uh, just, just in terms of dramatic structure. That was like a little sports movie in itself uh, of a game and watching that at a bar in Lansing with a bunch of Michigan State fans. Um, like as those especially because like where I grew up in East Lansing, uh, the people who tended to be University of Michigan fans were people whose parents had gone there who tended to be doctors and lawyers and uh, people from more working class backgrounds tended to be uh, Michigan State fans, given my background, I was somewhere in between, but I was definitely, I bled green, I was definitely a Michigan State fan. And so watching at uh, the end of that game, uh, seeing, um, seeing, MSU pull it off just at the last second in this way you could not have predicted uh, and seeing those uh, University of Michigan kids in, uh, in the stands just shocked, like, 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 like they just seen somebody shot on the field uh, was just Italian chef kiss. Uh, and, and, and again, watching that in this uh, bar full of Michigan State fans in Lansing, it was like, it was insane. It was like uh it was like VE Day uh, in Times Square at the end of World War II. So that is the story uh, behind the uh, the T-shirt. Um, <laughs> there's a uh, there's a, f- a friend of mine in the chat who uh, who attended the University of Michigan who is uh, 
is unhappy with the story. Uh, but, uh, but in any case, that answers your question. Uh, and I am, uh, I'm glad uh, you brought that up. Uh, <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, well, in any case, uh, so I guess the last thing I wanted to say before I sign off today, uh, and, and actually I'm glad that somebody asked about the t-shirt because that story always cheers me up. Um, and, uh, and we need that right now because, uh, things in the wider world are extremely grim right now in the way that I started off the episode talking to, uh, talking about with, uh, with Dave Feldman and Emma Vigland. So to review, uh, there is a plague still going on. Uh, a good chunk of the country is on fire uh, because of the effects of global climate change, uh, making, uh, making fires in the West Coast more common. Uh, and Donald Trump is going to get another Supreme Court justice. And, you know, Joe Biden, who, you know, I was... Uh, I uh, tried very, very hard to stop from being the nominee, you know, campaigning for Bernie uh, is the nominee and things are so grim that, uh, that, the, that we're actually in this situation of having to hope that Biden does limp across the finish line. Uh, so in terms of any, you know, future prospects uh, for, uh, you know, the kind of reforms that we desperately need, for the kind of socialist future that we desperately need, Again, things are looking very grim. I'll say what I said on uh, the YouTube live stream that I did uh, right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, uh, which is that I have been um, I've been uh, reading uh, Christopher Hitchens' book about Thomas Paine to research a book that I'm writing about Hitchens and what he was right about and what he was good about, you know, between 1971 and 2001 and how he ended up turning in a bad direction at the end. Uh, and, uh, in there, by the way, there's a great shout out to our friend Harvey Kay. Uh, but, you know, I have been thinking a lot about that, uh, that Thomas Paine line, uh, from when things were going bad during the Revolutionary War about, uh, about, uh, sunshine, uh, was it, uh, sun, uh, summertime soldiers and sunshine patriots, you know, who are, with you when things are going well and they abandon you when things are going badly. It's been hard not to think about that, right? Because in February, uh, I remember being in Nevada when, when uh, Bernie Sanders was about to win, uh, win that primary uh, and being very, very happy about that. And things since then have gone downhill and they've gone downhill in many, many ways. But guys, you got to keep the, keep the hope. Um, got to keep the faith because this is a grim situation in many ways, but um, this is not anything that merits taking that black pill politically uh, that things are going badly. We have definitely lost some battles, uh, but uh, we are going to win the war um, and and you just you just have to you just have to keep a much longer term perspective in mind. I know that that might seem like a slim comfort, but I think that is the way you've got to do it. Uh, meanwhile, uh, next week's episode uh, is going to have uh, Wazni Lambre, a uh, big Waz uh, from Woke Bros and other places. Uh, also, uh, Shahid Buttar, uh, who is running against uh, Nancy Pelosi. 
uh, because of California's, uh, the way their primaries work, the top two vote getters in the primary, even if they're still of the same party, uh, both end up in the general election. Uh, and, um, and so I have been uh, supporting, um, I've been supporting Shahid uh, for several months. Uh, uh, Michael Brooks and I were both in a Shahid Buttar uh, commercial that came out in February. And uh, there was a point where a lot of the left abandoned him because of allegations of impropriety that have since largely collapsed. Uh, and I think we've got to learn a lesson from what happened to Alex Morris and stop falling for this stuff, start being a little bit more skeptical. But uh, in any case, uh, really looking forward to that show and seriously keep the faith, think in, think in the long term um, that we've lost some battles and that's important and I don't want to minimize that and I want to be real about where we're at. But we are going to win the war. So solidarity forever, left is best. I will see you guys next week. Mm -hmm.